Does it hurt terribly? No, it's not too bad. They have me on a lot of painkillers. Oh, really? What kind? Codeine? Vicodin? Percocet? Fentanyl? Oxycontin? Paladone? I what? have no idea. Telehealth services have made it a lot easier for people to access health care and get diagnosed for all sorts of conditions. In one corner of the digital health market, two companies, Cerebral and Dunn Health, have become prominent providers of these services for mental health patients, in particular those with ADHD. Combined, the companies treat tens of thousands of patients online. They've attracted big-name endorsements and lots of venture capital. These companies say they're providing an essential service in the U.S., where mental health treatment is in short supply. And psychiatrists support their goal of expanding access to such services. But do these companies' apps make it too easy to get prescriptions for powerful stimulants like Adderall? Cerebral and Dunn say they don't pressure clinicians to prescribe stimulants. But some healthcare providers think the services come with increased risks. Here to discuss this is our biotech reporter, Joseph Walker. Hi, Joseph. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Can you start by telling us briefly about these two companies? You know, what are their goals and how do they make money? Sure. So um, Cerebral and Dunn are a couple of younger companies that got started in 2019. And um, their goals are to make it easier to get mental health care online through telehealth services. Basically, patients will pay to see a physician and then there is a subscription-based model. So the patients will typically pay a monthly fee. Is there a reason these startups are seeing such high demand for ADHD medication in particular? Yeah, because they've targeted that as a market. So Cerebral does um, mental health more broadly, you know, things like depression or bipolar disorder. It will treat Dunn really focuses uh, or specializes on ADHD in particular. But the way that the companies find customers is through uh, advertising, typically using social, Instagram ads, and so on. And so those ads will, you know, basically say, do you have ADHD? Or, you know, here are the symptoms of ADHD. Here are the benefits of treatment. And if you'd like to seek care for it, you know, you just click on the link. Is there a reason why we might see more prescriptions given out by these apps than, say, a traditional doctor's office? Unfortunately, we don't have the data to make direct comparisons between these online services and traditional doctor's offices. But under the model that these startups have developed, it's really about treating people as efficiently as possible. Monthly follow-up visits can last 15 minutes or in some cases without even having a face-to-face consultation if the patient decides they want to just fill out an online questionnaire. And so there's a lot less friction in the patient-provider relationship And it's possible that they could treat more patients than a physical doctor's office could. And you spoke to some of the healthcare professionals who are working for these apps. What did they say about how the system is working? Well, it depends on who you talk to, obviously. The companies employ a large number of uh, nurse practitioners, typically, who are typically licensed to provide care and prescribe medications, including controlled substances in many states. And so a number of the people that we spoke with had some concerns where they felt that they were being pressured to diagnose people with ADHD and to prescribe uh, medication like Adderall to them. And there was also some concerns that, especially on those initial evaluations where patients are seeing their the provider for the first time, that the 30-minute time uh, limit on those evaluations was just too short to really um, 
properly evaluate and diagnose a patient. You know, some psychiatrists told us and nurse practitioners told us too that they would typically like to have at least an hour, you know, maybe 45 minutes to meet with a patient that, that first time. Often, if they were doing it in person, they would try to maybe take a blood pressure reading. They want to evaluate your past medical history and just kind of get to know you. And that's partly to make sure that the ADHD symptoms aren't sort of um, disguising another condition. You know, these these are startups, they're tech companies, and, and often in the tech world, there's an ethos of move fast and break things. But in the medical world, things move a lot slower. How are the companies and their investors squaring those two things? Well, I think that what the companies would say is that their clinicians follow the evidence-based guidelines for treatment. They use both these video consultations over uh, Zoom or video teleconference to have uh, maybe an initial face-to-face at the very least. But then they would also use questionnaires and self-reported medical histories to supplement that information. And I think they would say that that is providing them with the level of care they might see in a traditional setting. I think that part of the issue that we've heard from some clinicians is about when some patients maybe present with more advanced or complicated cases that can't really be solved in 30 minutes. And, and, you know, and some of the companies will say that in those cases, you know, we're really not set up for providing that type of care. And so we will, you know, refer those patients out to another physician or a healthcare provider. You know, it seems like it's in both of these apps' best interest to keep people coming to their site and requesting more prescriptions. They get fees every time they do it. And it isn't just about making, you know, money off of each of them. It also helps them gain investors. It helps them grow in a way that maybe an individual doctor's office doesn't need. So is there concern that their focus might not be necessarily on the individual patient? Is that what some of the healthcare providers you spoke with were concerned about? Yeah, yeah, we've heard that concern that the focus on growth and getting as many patients in as possible and growing revenue is a concern for sure. Absolutely. Though, you know, it should be said that that sort of concern is, you know, not brand new. I think those types of concerns have existed within healthcare for many, many years. So, Joseph, what do these companies say to the accusations that they are maybe over prescribing ADHD medication to some of their patients? Well, Dunn says that it is trained and educated its providers about the proper ways to assess patients and to prescribe stimulants, and ultimately they use their clinical judgment to decide on whether to do so. Cerebral said that about half of the patients who come to the company with concerns about ADHD are ultimately diagnosed with the disorder, and that a single-digit percentage of their patients are given a controlled substance to treat ADHD. And Cerebral says that they are not incentivized to diagnose people with ADHD. Both of these companies fall into the telehealth market, which is an area we've seen grow during the pandemic. Where do things stand with that sector now? Yeah, so telehealth really you know, exploded uh, relative to where it was early on in the pandemic, especially for all sorts of visits. But for most things, it, it really came down after a while. But actually, in the mental health field, it seems to have uh, stayed pretty high. I think it's around still above uh, 30% at the most recent survey that was done by the Kaiser Family Foundation. And so... Um, There's been a desire in the medical community, I think, for many, many years now to try to make it more efficient because the system we have now is extremely 
people heavy, real estate heavy. It's inefficient in many ways. It's very, very expensive. And, and not all doctor's visits need to be done in person, though certainly many do. And so I think that there's been a hope that one of the consequences of the pandemic would be that greater use of telehealth would stick around after it abates. And I think the data right now is sort of unclear on that, though, again, you know, in mental health, it does seem that it's been pretty persistently used. All right. That was our reporter, Joseph Walker. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Instead of saying these people are make some excellent workers because they're tough and all like that, they say they make some excellent slaves, you know. They had the incorrect position going in. They could have very easily taken the other route. Say, no, they'll be co-workers, you know, work side by side. And all of us working together, we can get it done. Could have told Indians that. Same thing. Some of them did start off with, but then they got attitude. Hmm. So you know, we're going to take it all. You know, we ain't going to leave you nothing. Right? <laughs> Indians said, well, you know, I thought we were going to share. I mean, you know, that's what we sat down at Thanksgiving. I mean, you know, and Say we all work together and all like that. Well, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I think I need to. I think I, what I need to do is going back to giving you a good whipping, chief. <laughs> that's all it was. Chief said, there's plenty of land here for everybody. We got more land than we can take care of and whatnot. So, I mean, we welcome you and all like that. Well, no, I'm going to take it all. <laughs> Give you a bottle of whiskey. That's what you're going to get out of the deal. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. And that's wow. what they did. And they admit that they did it. They wrote books about it, bragged about it. Yeah, how many Indians were killed today, you know? Only good Indians are dead Indians. The federal government has begun to confront a disturbing and tragic era in our country's recent history, when generations of Native American children were sent or taken by force to boarding schools run by federal authorities. That investigation, called the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative, will be really hard. Rob Manning begins our two-part series with a look back at one of the nation's first boarding schools in Oregon and the gaps between official record-keeping and what really happened. In the 19th century, the United States was at war with many tribes. The U.S. was forcing tribal leaders to sign peace treaties and move their people by the thousands onto reservations. At the same time, the federal government was building boarding schools for indigenous children. Many in the United States had the um, thought that the best way to change the, the Native Americans of this continent was to change their children first. That's Warren Saylor, a former chairman of the Spokane tribe. Saylor has helped document the Spokane's history, including the 1880s when federal agents were pressuring tribal leaders to send children to new boarding schools. The leader of the Spokane back then, Chief Lott, wasn't resisting white settlers' teaching, but he wanted the government to build a school nearby in eastern Washington. 
As Saylor recounts, federal agents brought Lot a different plan. And they asked him, allow us to take your children, Spokane children, to what they termed were the sunsets or Forest Grove, Oregon. There was an Indian school that they created in, in Forest Grove. The Forest Grove Indian Training School opened in 1880. Even though it, it broke his heart to have to do that, he still wanted his children to be able to read and write English. He, he knew that was going to help them into the future. And so he allowed them to take some children. And then they came and took some more. Two of those was his son, Oliver Lott, who later became chief, and his own daughter, uh, Martha Lott. Oliver and Martha Lott were taught English. Their traditional clothes were replaced with Western-style clothes. They had classmates from other tribes, the Umatilla, Wasco, and Warm Springs. Many who were sent where the sun sets never made it home again. On a hot day last summer, Pacific University archivist Ava Gugamos stepped carefully through the city cemetery in Forest Grove. And so when the first student at the school died, uh, Martha Lott of the Lower Spokane, um, the Congregational Church donated a plot to the Indian school where she could be buried. And that plot had room for 12 graves. So we can walk over now and see exactly where it was. The Forest View Cemetery is full of stone markers with the names of white people who died near here. Official records say Martha Lott died at the Forest Grove Indian Training School in October 1881 after suffering from an unidentified disease for some time. She's likely the first child to die at a federally run boarding school in Oregon. But her name, and the name of a boy from the Umatilla who's believed to be buried here as well, aren't on markers here. And we don't know, we have a map of where their graves are supposed to be, but it doesn't seem to exactly match up with where these other headstones are. Like, I think, I think Martha Lott's supposed to be in between this headstone and one of these two headstones, but obviously she's not. So I think she's probably someplace like here or here. Gugamos points towards spaces between markers, but even after spending years poring over official records and correspondence related to the Forest Grove School, she's not sure. Gugamos can document 11 children who died at the Forest Grove School during the five years it was open, from 1880 to 1885. Her research suggests the remains of a few of the children were reclaimed by their tribes. Warren Saylor says tribal histories show a pattern of Spokane children being sent to Oregon and not coming back. Overall, they took from 23 to 25 children, and they sent them down there over a few years. So when Chief Lot sent these kids to be educated, only five returned of the 23 or 25 cent. Everybody else died of disease and are still buried down there at Forest Grove. Federal records document 19 Spokane children attended the Oregon boarding schools in those early years and six deaths with just Martha Lott buried at the Forest View Cemetery. Gugamos acknowledges there are big gaps in official records. Really all we have to go on now for evidence is a sliver of a sliver of mostly written evidence was mostly written down by the perpetrators in this situation. By evidence from perpetrators, Gugamos is talking about written records kept by the largely white federal government. 
That discrepancy involves one tribe from just a five-year period at a school that's been pretty carefully researched. Multiply that by hundreds of tribes spanning decades at many schools with fewer available records, and that's the daunting task facing the present-day Interior Department. They're also up against more than a century of America ignoring and erasing an uncomfortable part of history. A few blocks from the city cemetery is where the Forest Grove Indian Training School once stood. The site where the school was is now completely built over with homes. There's nothing there indicating that the school was there. Most people who live on that block have no idea. But indigenous people all over the country have heard the stories of relatives who were taken from their families, deprived of their language and culture, and brought to unfamiliar and unhealthy places far away. Discoveries of remains near boarding schools in Canada pushed American authorities to confront our own history. The challenge now is to unveil what's been hidden and pull together the loose threads of research to tell the whole country of the trauma inflicted on indigenous communities during the boarding school period. It's an effort that the Interior Department is now taking on under the supervision of a new leader, who is herself indigenous. More on the challenges facing that agency with a closer look at an Oregon boarding school still in operation in the second part of our story tomorrow. Rob Manning. OPB. I heard people talk about anger on, on the Saturday program, and then I was just thinking about that incident. And um, what I've been doing since that day is listening to um, specific music like uh, Fela Kuti, Bob Marley. I might listen to um, old, old programs of Dr. Wilson, uh Neely Fuller, uh, The Cows. Um, and also, I've been listening to motivational speakers. I think one is called... Uh, one of the guys is Eric Thomas, a black guy, and another guy, a black guy, is uh, Les Brown, and that's been helping me out a lot. Um, like they they still make like jungle noises and do weird things, but everything that I've been doing, um, and then along with um, working out, thanks to Emmy, I started working out again. The Boston yoga scene is diversifying and looking to welcome more people of color to the physical and spiritual discipline developed in ancient India. GBH Radio's Marilyn Scherer has more on efforts to make yoga more inclusive and open the practice to everyone who seeks better health and relaxation. Throughout Boston and beyond, yoga communities are discussing what yoga is, how it should be taught, and who engages in the spiritual and physical practice. History has shown many people of color are unreceptive to yoga or have felt unwelcomed at studios. Its Hindu origins turns off some of strong Christian faith, and modern yoga has not been affordable for those with limited incomes. But many say that's changing. Um, there are more opportunities for BIPOC yogis to get into the field and gain access through scholarships. That's Linda Wells, known locally as the Wellness Warrior. She advocates teaching yoga to people of all shapes, sizes, and racial ethnic backgrounds. I consider myself to teach accessible, adaptable yoga, and I always weave in um, positive psychology into the the classes that I teach. 
In seasonable weather, Wells leads outdoor classes on Schoolhouse Hill in Franklin Park. That's where Johnny Hamilton Mason found her. She's a professor of social work at Simmons University. She says she wanted to be more involved in the African-American community and sought out yoga classes that meshed more with her lifestyle. Hamilton Mason has found her niche in the outdoor classes taught by Wells. And it just seemed magical uh, because it was outside and there were The majority of the participants were men and women of color. It resonated with me. In the United States, yoga is dominated by white practitioners, particularly women, even though people of color in India developed it thousands of years ago. Through the years, the spiritual practice has cross-pollinated with other bodybuilding forms in the country. It's almost as if that spiritual spiritual component of yoga has been stripped away and it has been now pretty much defined as a physical fitness activity here in the United States or in Western culture. That's Jana Long, co-founder and executive director of the Black Yoga Teachers Alliance. The creation of the Baltimore nonprofit in 2009 signaled a drive to diversify yoga that's reflected in the Boston area. Long says yoga has become overly commercialized, selling yoga mats, fashionable clothing, and expensive teacher training. When Linda Wells began her wellness journey in 2011, she got lucky with her introduction to yoga mixed with another culture. I started practicing yoga with a black teacher. It was the first time that I had seen a black woman teaching yoga, having her own wellness business, and being someone that um, was standing in a place of her authentic self. And I was like, I want some of that. Connect to each other beyond the ceiling. Well studied under Leslie Salmon Jones, co-founder of AfroFlow Yoga in Cambridge. Since 2008, she's been offering community classes with her husband Jeff Jones, playing live music rooted in his West African heritage. It's a heart-centered practice that combines uh, practices of yoga, meditation, live music, and movement in a non-judgmental environment. Ten years ago, Sam and Jones says there was a lack of diversity in the yoga world, and it was challenging for many people of color to see themselves reflected in yoga studios. A lot of people of color would walk in and they didn't see themselves reflected, even men as well. But she and her husband offer classes that make yoga fun, healthy, and inclusive. And so that's been one of our missions, is to show that people, all people can come in, all levels and colors and sizes and shapes can do yoga. There's, it's not exclusive. And that truly is the purpose of a yoga practice, to welcome all. Namaste, they say. Marilyn Shera, GBH, Boston's local NPR. If our city won't keep us safe, we will keep us safe. Those are the words a group known as Crosswalk Collective LA posted to Twitter nearly two weeks ago. The tweet was paired with pictures 
that show freshly painted crosswalks at Remain Street and Serrano Avenue in East Hollywood. The tweet got a lot of attention and even requests from people asking the collective to paint crosswalks at other intersections in the city. Here to talk more about this group and how the city has responded is Vanessa Romo. She's a reporter at NPR based right here in L.A., and she did a story on it as well. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Steve. I want to talk about this group, Crosswalk Collective. What do you what do you know about this group? Well, they're a very secretive group. Uh, they do not they have not revealed their identity. We don't know how many members are in the group or who founded the group. What we do know, and I know this by communicating with the group over Twitter, is that they're a small group of people and they say they're fed up and so they're taking matters into their own hands. Well, what are they what are they fed up with? Because it is it about crosswalks specifically? Is it about city services? It does appear as though they're upset about a broad range of city services that impact low income neighborhoods and people of color specifically, but they're focusing their attention specifically on installing crosswalks across the city. The collective wouldn't talk to you, wouldn't talk to us either. We reached out to them as well, but they did release a statement, and I want to read um, what it said in part. Quote, we are a small group of community members who have tried for years to request crosswalks and other safe streets infrastructure the official way. At every turn, we've been met with delays, excuses, and inaction from our city government, as well as active hostility to safe streets projects from city council members. End quote. Active hostility. That's that sounds pretty damning right there. Yeah. You know, I asked them about this and I said, can you provide us any, you know, quote unquote receipts? Right. What how in what ways have people responded with hostility? And is there any sort of documentation that you can provide? They say that they do have it, but that in order to protect the identities of their members, they weren't willing to share it with us. So. I took it upon myself to reach out to the formal organizations. I reached out to Los Angeles Department of Transportation, as well as the council member in that area of of Romaine and Serrano Avenues, where they painted the crosswalks. And I said, hey, have you been contacted by this group? There is no, there are no records that point directly to any communication from the group as a collective. It is possible that individual members of the group may have contacted either Department of Transportation, LADOT, or Mitch O'Farrell's office, who's the council member in that neighborhood. Uh, But there's no way to know because, you know, the members of the group didn't provide any documentation and neither of those other two offices can provide any documentation either. And by the way, it had been several years since there had been any requests made either to O'Farrell's office or to LADOT for any improvements on that specific corner. So the last time that any requests were made uh, was in 2017 and it was for a broken street sign and I think also at the time they installed the stop sign. So they made it, they converted that corner from a two-way stop sign to a four-way stop sign. But again, that was back in 2017 and no new requests for that intersection have been made since then. 
there are a lot of things that go into painting things on on asphalt, on concrete, right? I mean, it has to last. There has to be some sort of lasting element to it where, you know, after so many cars, thousands of cars go over it, it's got to be able to stay. But also, I mean, the city probably has just a, a you know, a, a way of doing it, right? And And that's how the government works. Yes, and that is actually one of the things that Mitchell Farrell's office raised. You know, there is there is a list, there is an order, there are a number of projects that the city and council members are taking on, and there is a specific order in which they're happening. So, for instance, going back to this specific intersection at Romaine and Serrano, O'Farrell's office said that actually they have a number of additional safety improvements in the works for that corner. However, when I asked for a timeline, I said, hey, okay, great. When is this going to happen? They said, uh, we can't give you an answer. And I think that's the frustration of this group specifically and the broader community in general. You know, the response on Twitter to this single intersection that this Crosswalk L- Crosswalk Collective LA painted has been so positive. And there are so many people adding their own, requesting their own crosswalks and requesting intersections that could use a crosswalk. The city, Vanessa, has recognized the danger posed to pedestrians in this city because of the, the car culture, frankly, right? So, so you have Mayor Garcetti's vision, zero plan, which is a, you know, has a goal to reduce pedestrian deaths to zero. How, how dangerous is it? What kind of numbers do we have on that? The numbers are pretty alarming. Uh, According to data from the Los Angeles Police Department from 2021, 128 pedestrians were killed in Los Angeles, uh, which is a 6% increase over 2020. And so if you break that down, that means that every three days a person was killed walking the streets of LA, which is four times the national average. And then another 486 people, so nearly 500 people were severely injured walking the streets of LA, which is another increase of 35% over the previous year. Um, and, you know, in a in a poll of, of people in LA, the majority of Angelinos said they don't feel safe crossing the street in their own neighborhood. NPR reporter Vanessa Romo, based here in L.A. Vanessa, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Steve. Who will pay reparations on my soul? In April 2021, the city of Evanston made national headlines when it approved local reparations for qualifying black residents. But it took nine months for the city council to roll out the initiative. WBEZ's Araceli Gomez-Aldana has more on the slow and, at times, contentious launch of the historic program. On January 13th, lifelong Evanston resident Ramona Burton was watching as 16 grant recipients were randomly chosen by a bingo wheel to receive reparations from Evanston. 8783993430. The only issue was she couldn't hear the Zoom meeting. I didn't have sound for some reason. So then if they pulled my number, I wouldn't have known because I didn't have sound. But someone that used to be married to my nephew went to the meeting to her, so she called me right away to tell me that they called my number. Burton is 73 years old, and she was one of 600 approved applicants in the running to receive $25,000 to use on home repairs or to pay for a mortgage. Burton knew she won, but that's all she knew. And when she tried to get some answers, 
I tried to call to the city of Evanston a couple of times to find out because I hadn't heard anything. And the person that they gave me didn't answer. Just a voicemail came on, so I left a message, and I called twice. Weeks went by, and the Evanston residents didn't know who the 16 recipients were, and the recipients themselves didn't have any details about what came next. But communication issues were just one of many problems with the program's implementation. After its passage, many Evanston residents raised questions about how the committee would select the grant recipients. Who would handle the initial $400,000 that were to be distributed? And would the grant recipients be given the money directly? When you're the first to do something, there really, you know, there aren't any models to follow. Alderman Peter Braithwaite is the second ward representative and chair of the Reparations Committee. The committee met once a month to discuss the logistics of the program, and many discussions revolved around the distribution of the $400,000. Some committee members believed the recipients should be able to handle their own money. Others thought bringing in a third party would be logistically easier on the committee and the city of Evanston. Braithwaite says they wanted to protect the recipients from potential scammers. We started to talk about the statistics of harm. You know, seniors are are vulnerable. And sadly to say that some of the fraud and, and harm is caused by family members or people that are close to them who have access to their funds. At a long meeting in December, members decided to partner with the nonprofit Community Partners for Affordable Housing. Recipients can choose if they want the nonprofit to act as an intermediary between banks and contractors. But the distribution of funds raises another concern. Where is the money coming from? Evanston City Council says the $400,000 block is only the first of a larger $10 million reparations package. That's coming later from annual cannabis taxes for the next 10 years. Outgoing Alderwoman Cecily Fleming of Evanston's 9th Ward voted no on the local reparations housing program from the beginning. She wonders what happens if the millions of dollars from cannabis don't roll in. What is unfortunate is that we continue to talk about this $10 million pool of money, and the city of Edmonton doesn't even get all of the tax monies that people are taxed on the cannabis, which I think is a tax rate of like almost 40 percent. The city doesn't even get the full 40 percent. The city allocated 3 percent of its total cannabis sales towards the reparations fund. There's only one cannabis store currently operating in Evanston. It's still going to be a very slow work up to get to the $10 million. We're averaging about, I think, $250 thousand dollars really comes in. So at this rate, we're only going to probably continue to help about 16 people at a time. And that might be once or maybe twice a year if the cannabis taxes, you know, increase. Despite questions about how the city would get and distribute funds, Evanston moved forward slowly. The city has been holding three-hour-long meetings with each recipient to go over the legal and tax ramifications of receiving reparations. Alderman Braithwaite says once there's a transfer of funds, the names of the 16 recipients will have to be announced as part of a public record. As for Burton, she's lived in her home for more than 47 years, and she knows exactly what she's going to do with the reparations award when she eventually receives it. First on the list, a new roof and all new windows. And also a back fence. So if I have any money left, then I want to get central air conditioning. Then that would just... um, make the value of my house go up. And for Braithwaite, that's the thing that makes the months of meetings, discussions, and frustrations worth it for him. 
the end of the day, our goal is to return wealth. And in doing so, we're going to look at all the resources possible to achieve that goal. Araceli Gomez-Saldana, WBEZ News. Looks like someone needs a chill pill. I thought I asked for an African-American to replace Terry. You requested an Afro-American? African-American. Jerry, you know I did. I put it in writing. I didn't see it. You see it? If you don't like her, you send her back. Yeah, you tell her you didn't like her performance because she was white. That's not the point. Flipper, she's been here for five minutes. Give her a chance. This sounds dangerously like reverse discrimination to me. Well, here in California, in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the summer of racial unrest in 2020, the state passed a law that required corporate boards of publicly traded companies to diversify and include a member from a, quote, underrepresented community. That law, though, may be short-lived because on Friday, a judge here in L.A. found it unconstitutional. He didn't explain why, but we're going to try to find out by talking with our legal eagle, Loyola Law School professor, Jessica Levinson. Jessica, this was a one-page ruling. What did it say? Uh, not that much other than that the law is not going to go into effect. So the group challenging the law said we would like a permanent injunction. This was a question that was on summary judgment, meaning the judge himself, not a jury, was making decisions with respect to the law. And he said, yes, I'm granting that permanent, which is exactly what it sounds like, injunction, meaning the, this law, if my ruling stands, is not going into effect here. All right. So who was bringing this case in the first place? So this was a conservative organization called Judicial Watch, and they brought this particular case saying that it's unconstitutional under, and I think this is important to remember, California's law. So this is separate from a discussion that you and I have often about whether or not, for instance, certain laws violate the federal constitution. In this case, they said, this looks like a quota. And I'm looking at recent precedent in California, including a 2001 law. And this type of quota is not okay under California law. It violates anti-discrimination provisions. And it you don't have a good enough reason based on your data. And even if there was a good enough reason, what the what they argued here and what the court believed is that the fit of the law, the means by which it was achieved, were too much of a mismatch. So uh, who are they, who does the law discriminate against, according to them? So the idea is that the law had to prevent some discrimination. And the court said, well, and you asked me, who does it discriminate against? And I promise I'll get there. So the idea is that the law is preventing some discrimination. And the first problem here is that the court said, I'm not sure you prove that to me. I'm not sure that you prove mm. that this law actually is preventing discrimination. You came forward with statistical evidence, but based on a 2001 California appellate court decision, you need more than just evidence. The state said, well, look, we've got testimony. We don't have a written opinion from the judge, but it doesn't look like the judge thought there was enough there. Then you asked me specifically, who does it discriminate against? So we get in our analysis to this question of, does the law include some people that it shouldn't and fail to include some people that it should? And that's where the judge asked this question of, well, why does this include, for instance, Asian Americans when they've been 
by and large, this is a generalization, but economically successful. And the court, excuse me, the state had a response to that, but it was a really interesting interaction where you saw the judge saying, it's too broad and it's too narrow. It doesn't survive this heightened level of scrutiny that we need in California when we're talking about laws that would basically give a boost for people based on racial background or LGBTQ status. So this sounds a lot like this law that California passed several years ago that requires women or at least one woman to be on a corporate board of a publicly traded company. And that has actually worked to put more women on corporate boards, as I understand it, that the share of seats held by women has practically doubled since then. But I understand that is also on track to be legally challenged. Yes. And I remember uh, you and I talked about this. I believe they just finished a six-week trial back in March dealing with that law. I think it's the same group, Judicial Watch, that brought a challenge to that law. And we see very similar, although not identical, arguments basically being that you're not allowed to give this boost up to women, that it actually is a quota that would violate California state law. I don't think we have a ruling on that, but um, this is good news for challengers of that particular 2018 law. Okay, let's shift gears a bit and talk about a court ruling in Florida. A judge on Thursday blocked that state from enforcing part of its restrictive voting law. So this law had limited drop boxes, uh, limited voter registration efforts, uh, limited this idea that you could give people food and water while they waited online to vote. So the judge uh, issued a pretty scathing 300-page ruling. And what did he say? So the judge here said, Florida, you engaged in intentional discrimination, that I'm looking at 20 years of laws, and it can no longer just be a coincidence that these laws unduly burden Black voters and their ability to exercise their right to vote. And what he said is, because you've engaged in this egregious history of intentional discrimination, I'm subjecting you to something called pre-clearance, which means, Florida, if you want to make changes with drop boxes or third-party voter registration organizations or even um, these line warming provisions that prevent people from giving water and food to people who are standing in line to vote, you have to check in with me first that basically, Florida, I don't trust you. So that's basically putting back in the Voting Rights Act uh, preclearance formulation just for the one state, not for the, all the South. It, exactly, except that Instead of checking in with a three-judge panel or with another uh, federal government organization, it's this particular court. And there have a, been a lot of people after the Supreme Court gutted half of the Voting Rights Act in 2013 that have said, judges use this preclearance more often, try and put more states, counties, and cities that are engaging in problematic voter laws that are passing these suppressive voter laws, put them under preclearance. And that's what this judge decided to do. I imagine Florida will appeal. Uh, I absolutely imagine Florida will appeal and they'll appeal to the 11th circuit, which is now quite conservative leaning circuit. President Trump did a good job of uh, nominating a number of people to that court. And I think that the 
it's it's hard to find that the 11th circuit would uphold this decision it is a very detailed methodical decision but i don't see it standing once it's appealed to 11th circuit and then if it goes to the supreme court this is a more conservative court than the court that gutted again half the voting rights act in shelby county back in 2013 Jessica Levinson is a Loyola Law School professor and our regular legal eagle here on Press Play. Jessica, thank you. Thank you. I even told, I even told people that back when uh, Clarence Thomas was being appointed to the Supreme Court. Say, man, that's a stone, Tom. Everybody, I said, you know. I said, yeah, well, I said, but you didn't have nothing to do with him being there. One thing. And you ain't going to have nothing to do with him leaving. And if you do have something to do with it, they'll replace him in five minutes if they want to. They don't have to go through you and ask you nothing. If they want Clarence Thomas to be your spokesperson, that's what he's going to be. And ain't nothing you can do about it unless you can deal with them. No matter the final tally, today's vote by members of the Senate Judiciary Committee will be historic. The senators are set to vote on whether to recommend Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, the first African-American woman nominated to the Supreme Court, to the full Senate for confirmation. Most of the Republican committee members who took part in the March hearings plan to be on the wrong side of history. Even Republican Senator Ben Sass, who described some of his GOP colleagues' antics as jackassery, has said he won't support her. The Nebraska Republican acknowledged Judge Brown Jackson as an extraordinary person, but added, we both love this country, but we disagree on judicial philosophy. Sadly, most Republican committee members will vote no. Senator Lindsey Graham already announced he would vote no, even though he supported her two previous confirmations. First in 2013 as a district court judge for the District of Columbia, and again in 2021 for the U.S. Court of Appeals, D.C. Circuit, where she is now seated. The prospect of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's confirmation to the nation's highest court was apparently too much for the nasty and rude gang of questioners who boldly cherry-picked her sentencing in child pornography cases and continued to take her words out of context even when she corrected them. Judge Brown-Jackson twice asked that senators go down two sentences to see what she'd actually ruled in one case. She was patient and poised, absorbing the yelling and finger-pointing, not questions about her judicial experience, so much as statements about culture war issues. Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn insisted that she define woman, and in a red-faced fit of pomposity, Senator Ted Cruz, who first met the judge when they were both Harvard Law School students, demanded to know if she thought babies were racist. He challenged the curriculum at the private school where she is a board member for teaching Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's book, anti-racist baby. That would be the same book that is part of the curriculum at the school his children attend. The Texas senator continued his rabid rant past his allotted time, grandstanding, a photograph seems to document, right before concentrating on checking Twitter. Every African-American woman watching knew exactly what Judge Brown Jackson was feeling. I kept thinking about those black church elders who often reminded me there's no testimony without a test. As a black woman, she's had a lifetime of testing, 
navigating racist assumptions about her intelligence and abilities. I sobbed when Senator Cory Booker used his time to call out the race and gender attacks and to recognize her stellar accomplishments, saying, God has got you. And how do I know that? Because you're here, and I know what it's taken for you to sit in that seat. As it happens, an accident of history adds to the weight of today's vote. On April 4th, 54 years ago, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson is one of the children of the Dreamers who fought racial segregation, imagining a future where she could ascend to the Supreme Court. She'll have at least one Republican vote. Maine Susan Collins pledged to vote for her confirmation in the full Senate vote. It's possible that by weeks in, Judge Brown Jackson will be the third black justice and the sixth woman ever to serve on the high court. Testimony in hand. Callie Crossley, GBH, Boston's local NPR. Is that a real gun? Yeah, yes, this is a real gun. Do you kill people? No, if some guy's hurting someone, I try to shoot him in the leg or something just to stop him. Mama says police misshoot black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true? Tonight, an Orange County deputy is off the job after being indicted nearly two years after investigators say he shot a man during a traffic stop that ended in a crash. That deputy told the sheriff he opened fire because he thought the suspect was reaching for a gun. But as News 6's Carolina Cardona reports, the body cam video showed otherwise. Fifteen months after a deputy-involved shooting incident took place in Orlando, an Orange County grand jury returned an indictment against Orange County Deputy Sheriff Bruce Stalk. Stop, stop, stop! Stop running, stop running! Stop running! Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Show your hands! Show your fucking hands! Stalk, you okay? The Orange County Sheriff's Office said Deputy Sheriff Stolk shot a suspect after a traffic stop on Kingsgate Drive in Orlando. Two separate middle. body camera videos Just from the night of December 20th, 2020, show deputies run after the suspect. Moments later, he's seen on the floor and in pain after being shot in the leg. The man survived the shooting, but records show he was driving a motorcycle with an illegal license plate on it and, when stopped, ran behind a nearby apartment complex. After the incident, Orange County Sheriff John Mina said Stolk opened fire because he believed the suspect might have been reaching for a gun, but the sheriff said it wasn't clear whether or not the suspect was armed. In the videos, it appears there is no weapon. Stolk is charged with aggravated battery with a deadly weapon or causing great bodily harm. The indictment alleges that Stolk knowingly committed a battery against the suspect and intentionally touch or strike him against his will. Charges against the man shot have been dropped. As for Deputy Polk, he has been relieved of all law enforcement duties and assigned to administrative work while the case is resolved. In Orange County, I'm Carolina Cardona, News 6. Now, following the indictment, Orange County Sheriff John Mina released a statement saying, quote, I believe in our justice system and it is important we let this case run its course. Our deputies have one of the most difficult and complex jobs in the world. They must make split second decisions and act in the moment to protect themselves and others, end quote. Mama, I got you.
little brother. I heard y'all ain't hitting in New York. Word. Word. I heard y'all ain't hitting in L.A. Word. 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 I heard y'all ain't hitting in North Carolina. North Carolina. The Citizens Review Board voted 9-0 to zero last night in favor of a Charlotte school teacher whom CMPD officers handcuffed after they misidentified her as a suspect of a violent crime. While the ruling is not a final determination in the case, it's a significant victory for Jasmine Horn, the woman officers wrongly detained. There will now be an evidentiary hearing to further investigate the actions of the officers. WFAE Sarah D'Elia attended the hearing and filed this report. Before the hearing, attorney Darlene Harris was bracing her client, Jasmine Horn, for defeat. And so I feel confident in my client's case. I feel confident in you know, what we have to present. Um, I just don't necessarily feel confident in the system. Harris said her strategy was to let the truth speak for itself and hope for a just outcome, some form of accountability against the officers involved. But to explain how we got to Horn's victory last night, we have to go back to last summer. That's when Horn filed a complaint against the officers shortly after the incident in June. CMPD conducted an internal investigation but found the officers acted in good faith based on the information they had. CMPD Chief Johnny Jennings earlier this year on WFAE Charlotte Talks backed that sentiment up. They didn't feel like they had the right individual, and as soon as they they, they investigated that, uh, they corrected those actions. So uh, I can't fault the officers uh, for looking for a violent criminal who had just committed a very serious crime uh, and, and, and responded to that. Horn previously said she prayed for her life during the incident. Reflecting on myself, like all the things that I could have done that I put on hold because I said I would have more time and now I'm not going to have any more time. And I'm just going to be another black woman, another black person killed by the police. So Horn appealed CMPD's findings to the Citizens Review Board. All right, good afternoon, everyone. We'll call this meeting to order at 435. Well, my name is Tanya Jameson, and I am the chair of the Citizens Review Board. We're going to start off with the... The meeting was public for less than six minutes before members went into a closed session. The board was given access to the internal affairs file of Horn's case prior to the hearing. So we'll ask that everyone that's not Mrs. Horn or her attorney to please leave the room and... uh... One of our clerks will show you all where you can wait. Harris and Horn presented their case to the board, but couldn't discuss the details of what was said. They had to sign non-disclosure agreements before the hearing. But they could discuss how they thought it went. Harris likened it to David versus Goliath. David's going, might lose this time. But I think that, um, you know, I think the process is a little bit confusing because the review board knows a lot more than I do when I go in. So it's like talking to a jury that has more more information than you do. You know, I, I think it's just interesting how much people protect law enforcement. I think that people protect law enforcement more than law enforcement protects us. CMPD then gave its presentation with Horn and Harris out of the room. CMPD declined to comment for this story. CMPD previously stated there was an ongoing internal investigation to determine if any policies were violated in entering Jasmine Horn's name into the license plate reader system, but has not answered questions about the status of that investigation. The board came back in open session to announce its decision. By a vote of 9 to 0, the board found that there is substantial evidence of error. There was no discussion of why the board reached its decision. Harris, 
Horn and her mother looked shocked as the decision was read. They exited the room quickly. Surprised? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more surprised at the vote. Yeah. yeah. I always thought the facts were on our side, but you get very used to um, people deciding otherwise, you know, because you're in a situation with law enforcement. Sometimes people ignore. It's hard for people to hear the facts. Um, and so I'm just thankful that the review board was able to put any bias in favor of the police to the side and actually listen to what happened and make a decision. This has not been an easy road for Horn. It's taken an emotional toll and she's still dealing with the trauma from that day. But after the board made its decision to move forward, she seemed to be at peace with her decision to pursue this appeal. If you know that you've been violated in some way, whether it's the police or just anything in general, don't be silent. Speak up. You never really know what comes out of speaking up for yourself. The board will conduct an evidentiary hearing on May 12th, giving both sides some time to prepare for the next step. For WFAE News, I'm Sarah D'Elia. Now everybody's like, jails ain't tough enough. Jails ain't tough enough. We gotta have a death penalty. Jails ain't tough enough. In 2019, New York became the latest state to diminish the use of cash bail in the court system. But now policymakers are under pressure to roll back those reforms as New York City deals with a spike in crime, even though there's no data supporting a clear link between the two. John Campbell of member station WNYC has been covering the debate at the state capitol in Albany, and he joins us now. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. How does New York's cash bail system work, and why did lawmakers see fit to reform it three years ago? Yeah, so back in 2019, there was a major push among progressive activists and lawmakers to really reshape the criminal justice system. And one of the ways they wanted to do it was by eliminating the use of cash bail, Now, cash bail applies when someone is charged with a crime, but they haven't been tried or convicted yet. So we don't know if they're guilty or not guilty. And the idea behind imposing cash bail is that the money is an incentive to make sure you return to court for your court dates. Once you do and your case is finished, you get that money back. But Democratic lawmakers say that is basically criminalizing poverty. You could have two people charged with the same crime, but if one of them doesn't have any money, they could languish in jail while the other is set free. And the opponents of cash bail, they often point to the case of Khalif Browder, who spent three years in a New York City jail for a petty theft charge that was ultimately dropped. He actually went on to kill himself at the age of 22. By that point, New Jersey and California and Washington, D.C., they had all passed major bail reforms. And New York lawmakers and then Governor Andrew Cuomo followed suit in 2019. They didn't eliminate cash bail entirely, but they did eliminate it for most misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. What has been the impact from those reforms? The immediate impact was the state's jail population declined. Now, that number had already been on the decline for years. But the Vera Institute of Justice, they tracked these numbers and they noted there was a 30 percent drop from the start of 2019 to the start of 2020. Now, when someone commits a lower level misdemeanor or a nonviolent felony, they aren't remanded to jail. They're generally released on a ticket or on their own recognizance. And even in more serious cases, judges are still required to implement the least restrictive measures that ensure that a defendant will be back in court though judges are required to take a lot of factors into account when they're determining that standard. 
So you're saying jail populations continue to go down. You had judges considering less punitive ways to get people back in court. But there's now this backlash against these reforms. Why is that happening now? I mean, really, the biggest reason is because there's been a spike in major crime in recent months in New York City and and in some other cities in the state. And I want to be clear, the data is still preliminary, but there really hasn't been much of a link between the spike in crime and bail reform, at least as far as the data shows. And progressive activists, they're also quick to point out that the crime spike is happening in cities across the country, and it, it may be exacerbated by the COVID pandemic. But Governor Kathy Hochul is up for election this year, and and some of her opponents have have really latched on to the issue of crime. They're airing ads already. Lee Zeldin, he's a Republican congressman from Long Island. He's running against Governor Hochul. He even picked a 20-year veteran of the NYPD to be his running mate. Her name is Allison Esposito, and she says she wants to see judges have much more say in whether someone should face cash bail. They are there for a reason. They are supposed to evaluate all factors in every crime and make an educated decision. So Governor Hochul was facing a lot of questions about what she would do. And she ultimately came out with this 10 point public safety plan that does include changes to the bail system. For the most serious of crimes, judges would be given more leeway to consider a defendant's criminal history and whether they have a history with guns. And she wants to make repeat offenders eligible for bail if they are charged with a second crime while their first case is still open. What's been the reaction to that plan? Are, are lawmakers open to making these changes? I mean, really, it's it's been a quite mixed reaction. Hochul is trying to tuck these proposals into the state budget, which is late right now. And there's been quite a bit of resistance from progressive activists in particular. They've been rallying pretty much nonstop at the Capitol. Here's Jared Trujillo. He's the policy counsel for the New York Civil Liberties Union. We're talking about people not being thrown into cages and being kept away from their families, from their loved ones, from their jobs, from their treatment programs. So Governor Hochul continues to negotiate in private with the legislature, and they seem to be working toward some sort of compromise. That's John Campbell from member station WNYC. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. White supremacy is the sickness. Eight weeks ago, you told parents to trust you, that you would unmask our toddlers. One mother, Daniela Jimpel, confronting the mayor at his city hall press conference this morning. When will you unmask our toddlers? That has not happened. The mayor says he kept his promise. But I also stated, if we see an uptick, we will come back and make the announcement of what we're going to do. We're going to pivot and shift as COVID is pivoting and shifting. There's a new variant. The numbers are increasing. New York City's health commissioner, Ashwin Vassan, said Friday cases are rising and it has our attention. We should have an extremely low tolerance for cases, for hospitalizations, and for bad outcomes in our babies. But parents were out at major transit hubs this morning handing out flyers, letting people know they don't believe Mayor Adams is following the science while requiring the lowest risk population to continue to wear masks in schools. We want to be able to decide whether our children wear a mask when they're in school all day. That's simply all we're asking. Attorney Michael Chessa will continue this battle on behalf of these parents in court. Keep the pressure on the mayor. I, I think he should be asked every time there's a microphone in front of him, why are you keeping masks on toddlers? The man, the man, man, man. 
race, race class, class, genre, genre and the dilemmas, the dilemmas of black manhood. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has renewed attention on how the NYPD focuses on gangs and crews. Precision policing tactics include the keeping of a so-called gang database, a list of thousands of people the NYPD says are gang members. Radio Rookies reporter Rainier Harris spoke with some of the people who have found themselves on that list. Craig Lewis was one semester away from getting his graduate degree. One night, he fell asleep, studying for a final. Then, a loud banging sound woke him up. I opened the door yelling, like, why y'all banging on my doors? Like, five in the morning, are you crazy? It was the police. They was like, Craig, yo, we got a warrant for your arrest. (laughs) I'm like, warrant? Craig was a student at the University of Bridgeport in Connecticut. He had a scholarship, a job as a grad assistant basketball coach, and he was about to get his MBA. His next stop was law school. He said he asked to see the warrant. It said racketeering, the RICO, narcotics, narcotics on the playground, firearms, discharging firearms. I'm looking at him like, yo, bro, this doesn't make sense, sir. Craig was sure it was a misunderstanding. He told his girlfriend he'd be back in time for dinner. I ain't see her for another two years, bro. That night in 2016, Craig was one of 120 people arrested in what is often called the largest gang raid in New York City history. But here's the thing. Craig says he was never in a gang. He waited almost two years in federal jail for a trial that never came. And to get out, he took a plea deal for something he says he didn't do. Everything they saying wasn't true, and it was still strong enough to take my freedom away. When Craig was a kid, his dad told him that, because he was black, all the odds would be against him. He saw police stopping and frisking and arresting black kids all the time. But his mom told him that, if he had an education, nothing could stop him. So, he thought doing well in school was the one way to beat the odds. I ended up going to private school, but I had to come home and deal with the neighborhood. I had the same experience as Craig. I also went to private school. And my parents told me the same thing. Get good grades and get a degree, and things will work out. But I didn't think you could just wake up one day and lose everything. Until I joined the Youth Justice Board. It's a group that meets twice a week to talk about issues that affect young people. Then we come up with policy proposals. Thank you for the opportunity to submit this testimony on the importance of... That's my friend Ananya Roy, presenting our work to the City Council in 2019. That year... We looked at ways the NYPD targets black and brown youth. As well as the use of social media to place youth of color on the NYPD criminal group database, commonly known as the gang database. The NYPD gang database is a list of more than 17,000 people that police have labeled as gang members. Some are as young as 13. Police say it helps them stop violence and keep communities safe. And the racial breakdown, unfortunately, is extremely disparate. That's former police commissioner Dermot Shea at a city council hearing in 2018. African-American, 65 percent. It was the first time the NYPD publicly shared details about the gang database. It's approximately 95 percent people of color. That same year, the city opened an investigation into the database. Before I joined the board, I had no idea the secretive gang database existed. Once I knew, I couldn't stop thinking about it. The people who are on this list, they look like me. And you can end up on it even if you're just hanging around the people that police think are gang members, like the friends you grew up with. 
Craig says that's what happened to him. Where I'm from, say you go to the park and you don't want to be by yourself and you make friends. But you know this friend is probably doing something in the nighttime, but that's nothing really your business what he's doing. I'm not thinking that I could get federally indicted for whatever he's doing right now. Babe Howell, a CUNY law professor, has submitted multiple records requests to the NYPD to find out how people end up on this list. She's even sued the department. I asked her what people should do to stay off the gang database. Don't wear red, blue, yellow, green, purple. Don't wear any color because every color is associated with the gang. Don't hang out with your friends, your cousin. Don't be in a photo with other people because any one of them may be in a gang. And just being labeled a gang member means police can target you and prosecutors can ask for higher bail and harsher sentences. They can also bring the same kind of conspiracy charges used to bring down the mafia against you. But not everyone who joins a gang is involved in organized crime. Hey, how's everything going? Hello, it's all good. How you doing? I met up with Vidal Guzman on the block where he was born and raised in Harlem. Vidal says that for him, joining a gang seemed inevitable. At five, he was homeless. At nine, he was selling drugs. At 15, he joined the gang that almost everyone around him was a part of. I'm not saying that it was right, you know, but at the end of the day, when circumstances and you don't see no jobs and you're seeing your family starving, what do you do? Selling drugs landed him in Rikers at 16 and later prison for five years. When he came home, he became an advocate for justice reform. Part of the closed Rikers campaign, you know, the uh, uh, raise the age. He's also part of a campaign to end the gang database. And right now, his work feels even more urgent. New York City Mayor Eric Adams wants police to focus specifically on gangs and guns. In March, he reinstated a new version of the notorious Plainclothes Unit that was disbanded two years ago after complaints about unconstitutional tactics. But Vidal says he knows what his community needs, and it isn't more police and more surveillance. As someone who's been through uh, every part of the elements of violence, you know, uh, doing violence, seeing violence, and, and violence being done to me, this database, it doesn't help anyone out. As I learned more about the database, I came to the same conclusion. Criminalizing communities of color doesn't keep us safe. And if I could see that, even back when I was just 14, why can't the adults in power? Vidal says what drives people to gangs is often a lack of resources. No jobs, no after-school programs, underfunded schools, and not enough money to survive. So if we're serious around ending gang violence or any violence, we need resources. Like Vidal, Craig Lewis has also become an advocate for resources and reform. He eventually wants to start a law firm in the Bronx, where he grew up. That was his plan before he got arrested. For now, he's struggling to get a job because he has a record from the plea deal he took. In the meantime, he speaks at rallies in schools, sometimes right alongside Vidal. We gotta make sure we have policy that protect us from- They want people to know that if we really wanna fix the root causes of violence, the city has to invest in people, not handcuffs. For WNYC, I'm Radio Rookies reporter, Rainier Harris. Tune in tomorrow for the next installment in our Radio Rookies series for a story about what it means to feel safe or unsafe as a young black girl in America. Uh, you write, because of the 1980s predator law, sexual offense carries serious, serious 
penalties. The injustice apparently lay in Persky's dis discretion to sentence below the 14-year maxim maximum of Brock Turner's crimes. Yet the judge and probation department applied discretion in a prototypically progressive way by accounting for factors like age, intoxication, and lack of criminal record that militated against the defendant's culpability and recidivist risk. For Dauber, such factors were illegitimate because campus rapists are all young, they are all intoxicated for the most part, and they're all high achieving. However, young and intoxicated rape defendants benefiting from youth and intoxication mitigation are no different from juvenile murder defendants benefiting from the ban on juvenile capital punishment. Recognizing that mitigating characteristics provide leniency to the class of defendants with those characteristics is an observation, not an argument. To be sure, progressives like Dauber have self-induced myopia about the problematic U.S. prison state when defending harsh criminal sanctions intended to protect minorities. Take, for example, hate crime legislation, a perennial progressive carve-out in the face of accumulating evidence that defendants of color are disproportionately subjected to hate crime enhancements, incarceration critics are beginning to realize that criminalizing identity-based animus is a double-edged sword metaphor. In fact, the population of identity protecting criminal law has given states another weapon in the enforcement arsenal. In May 2016, the governor of Louisiana signed the Blue Lives Matter law making Louisiana the first state to treat offenses against public safety workers as hate crimes. Now, so many ways I could look at that again, unexpected. I look back at that, but I mean, for real, for real, non-white people are for the most real, like, <laughs> oh, is this another one where we get the double, are black males most likely to be subjected to hate crime? Yes, not most likely, but far more disproportionate to the share of population than whites. Lynching is now a federal hate crime after President Biden signed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act into law this week. The measure allows federal prosecutors to seek an additional 30-year sentence for people who conspire to commit hate crimes that result in serious bodily injury or death. It's a law that's been more than 100 years in the making. The first federal anti-lynching legislation was introduced in 1900. But as Vice President Kamala Harris made clear at this week's signing ceremony, the new law is meant to address hate crimes in the present day. Lynching is not a relic of the past. Racial acts of terror still occur in our nation. And when they do, we must all have the courage to name them and hold the perpetrators to account. So how exactly will this law fight the hate crimes of today? To talk through that, we called Michael Lieberman. He's the senior policy counsel for the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a civil rights legal organization that focuses on these issues. He joins us now. Michael Lieberman, welcome. Thanks, Miles. Glad to be with you. I want to start by just talking about what lynching means. How is it defined when it comes to this law? Well, the law itself actually does not define lynching, but lynching is generally understood to be premeditated extrajudicial killing by a group. 
and this is a term that I think for a lot of people harkens back to, you know, the early to mid 20th century. The law itself is named after Emmett Till, who was a black teenager who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955. I'm wondering how often we're seeing lynching happening today in America. Well, fortunately, very rarely. The Tuskegee Institute did a really comprehensive survey of lynchings and found something like 4,700 lynchings between the year 1892 and 1908. The vast majority, something like 3,500 of those people were African-Americans. Fortunately, this is not a modern-day occurrence. I think the Ahmed Arbery case can easily be described as a lynching. And the only reason, Miles, for federal hate crime laws, when you have a situation, as we do, with 46 states and the District of Columbia having their own hate crime law, the only reason to have federal hate crime laws is as a backstop to those state hate crime laws when state and local officials either cannot or will not pursue an investigation and a prosecution under their own laws. So in the case you mentioned, the Ahmad Arbery case, the three men who were involved in that were convicted of federal hate crimes, and they're currently awaiting sentencing. And then in 2015, when Dylan Roof killed nine black people at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, he was also convicted of federal hate crimes and was sentenced to death. Why is this new law, this new anti-lynching law then necessary if we have these other federal hate crime laws already on the books? Right. So I think there's a symbolic aspect of this new law and a practical aspect. The practical aspect would be the enforcement mechanism. And I think it's really important that after 120 years of trying to get in a federal lynching law, it has been finally enacted this week and signed into law by President Biden. So there's something very important to be able to call a crime what it is. The federal government was incapable of calling a lynching what it was until this week. But there's also a very important symbolic aspect about this too. The law is a teacher. Law shapes attitudes. And when you have a federal anti-lynching law, you have a teachable moment to be able to talk about the history of lynching. Um, It's really important to talk about American history, the good and the bad, inclusive education, teaching truth. And when you have the opportunity for a teachable moment like this, you want to be able to take advantage of it. So thinking about how this is going to affect hate crimes today, there is a lot of research, recent research, that shows that longer sentencing does not actually help to deter crime. In 2016, the National Institute of Justice, an agency within the U.S. Department of Justice, published a report that affirmed this. Does this anti-lynching law, which adds harsher penalties, fit the modern thinking of how to actually stop these kinds of hate crimes? Yeah, so I guess I have two responses to that. First, I think everyone hopes that this new law will never have to be enforced, that there won't be a lynching that would have to be investigated and prosecuted. The law is a blunt instrument in facing off against hate and extremism. It's much better to prevent these crimes from occurring in the first place. 
It's true that there is a symbolic aspect, a public awareness aspect of this law, but there's also an accountability aspect of it. So it's not an increase of 30 years. It's a 30-year penalty. It's not an enhancement. It, for the first time, makes this crime eligible for up to 30 years. Are there other things, I guess, societally that you think of that can also help decrease the amount of hate crimes in the U.S.? Absolutely. What we need to do is focus on prevention. This administration in May of last year promulgated something called the National Strategy for Countering Domestic Terrorism. And there were four pillars. One of them is about you know, communication, better coordination. One of them is about enforcement. But one of them is also about education, long-term systemic efforts to address hate, racism, extremism. And that is where we need to focus much more attention. But we also want to see a concomitant commitment, a parallel commitment to prevention initiatives, civics education, understanding the Bill of Rights, democracy building efforts, working on online radicalization of youth. These types of things have the potential to prevent hate crimes from occurring in the first place. And it's much better to prevent it in the first place. That was Michael Lieberman. He is the Senior Policy Counsel for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. Don't use us. See, we are used for every kind of scheme that's experimental. Tuskegee experiment. Everything. Well, we got some syphilis running rampart. We got some AIDS running rampart. I got a, some notes here. I can't find them. We've got so many. Saying that AIDS is now labeled a black disease. See, let's just face it. It's basically a black disease. All right? Sure, some white people have it, but basically it's a black disease. After all, it did start in Africa. See, it's race. It's race all the time. COVID-19 has affected everyone to some degree, but it has taken its greatest toll in low-income communities of color. In our conversation with L.A. County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer, I mentioned a new study that's found that highlighting those racial disparities has actually reduced fear of the virus among white people. And as that level of fear has diminished, the study found that so did support for masks and other safety measures, along with empathy for those most vulnerable to the virus. Here to reflect on the results of the study and the ongoing work that he's doing in his community, Dr. Oliver T. Brooks is Chief Medical Officer at Watts Healthcare. Dr. Brooks, nice to have you back with us. Glad to be back with you again, Steve. Can we just start with how things are looking over at Watts Healthcare, the, the surrounding areas um, where you are? We've talked in the past about the struggles to get the folks in your community vaccinated and boosted. How are things looking a couple of years in now? So I would say it's similar to where it has been. What I am finding is with the rates low, our rate, our positivity rate now at our health center is somewhere around 2%, which is what the county is looking like. There just seems to be a less of a concern regarding COVID-19. Our vaccine rates in terms of number given per day or per week has dropped off uh, dramatically. We're not vaccinating very much. I think what has happened is we've gotten most of the people that are going to be vaccinated, most of the people that are going to be boosted, and it has kind of hit like a nadir or a low. 
uh, I believe that therefore we need renewed efforts because there's still a number of people out there that are not vaccinated and are not boosted. And and I guess that brings us, doctor, to this study. It, it comes from the journal Science Direct. And as I said, it found that the reduced fear of COVID among white Americans led to a reduction in support for safety precautions. So what do you think about that? Are you surprised by by what this study says? You know, I am a little surprised, but as I digest a study such as this, it reflects on a basic concept in America that actually is concerned to me, which is the us versus them or the balkanization. You know, the, so there's the white community, there's the Latinx community, there's the African-American community. And that is correct. There are all these communities. But for us to harness a, a, a pandemic, we all need to work together. So I think what is happening as uh, the white population as reflected in this study are saying, well, if the primary issue is or the higher rates are with this particular community, we don't have as much of an issue. It's more of a them issue than an us issue. So my concern for getting COVID or dying from COVID drops. And I think the other side, the study also said that less empathy, that's the part that also concerns me because that reflects on that us versus them. We're okay. They need to go on and just take care of themselves. But with a pandemic that doesn't discriminate the virus, that is, uh, that type of mentality or strategy will not work. How do you see that when you talk about empathy and the lack of it in some communities? How, how do you see that in terms of, you know, public health officials trying to spread the word about the virus and getting it through to everybody that, hey, it knows no boundaries. It knows no specific race or, you know, I mean, it's going to get into a body one way or another, no matter what the body looks like. Yeah, that is, you are absolutely correct about that. And again, for me, that is the most concerning aspect of this study. Uh, what, it, what we have found is there has been a reduction in the belief in public health mandates in, public, in the public health community, the science. And with something like this, it even adds more to that, i.e., it is a public health concern, but is is segmented, or even if you want to use a loaded term, segregated. Uh, what that'll mean going forward is as people view COVID-19 and the disparities and what is happening with infection, it's going to be from a lens of self or a certain community versus us as a whole. And that is going to make it a bit more difficult uh, to address if we do have a bump up. The studies actually show that African-Americans are more likely to wear a mask and be concerned about you know, exposure in the community. I think that's an understanding that there is a disparate effect on the African-American community. So in that respect, that the community there is having a reasonably good response, being more protective of self. And wearing a mask actually ends up protecting the white community because it protects everyone. Masks protect other people from you. So I, I believe that we need to think about this study and target messages that show that we are one as a country. Uh, of course, doctor, this is not just a racial divide. I mean, we also saw early in, in the pandemic, older Americans very concerned about COVID, while younger Americans got the message that they were less in danger. So they were out, you know, they were partying 
um, without masks. They were, you know, I mean, we saw a lot of that, right? Younger people, that's eh, not going to affect me. This is for, you know, grandma or grandpa. So one good aspect of that was that the highest rates of vaccination are among those that are the highest risk in terms of age, the seniors, 65 plus. That being stated, what we found in the middle stages of the pandemic is those young individuals were driving the pandemic. They were the ones that were infected and they started to be the ones that were most hospitalized. When I went to the hospital, the beds were filled with people that were like 20 to 45, not the seniors. And it was very interesting to see that because they were unvaccinated. Right now, COVID-19 disease, severity and death is a scourge of the unvaccinated. So yeah, it, it's that same concept that it's, it's it's segmented out and we look we feel this way they feel that way we look at them that way we look at others another way so what the, the issue is when we start to focus on disparities because they are real among african americans higher rates among the seniors higher rates but the younger you know lower rates we don't we can't have them feeling comfortable or lax in terms of their vaccination status or their infection control status. So it really is a double-edged sword. So as it has been for this whole pandemic, we are walking a fine line. Are you seeing a lot of this in L.A., what this study says, that, you know, that some people just, you know, they think they think it's a it's the other person's problem and not and not their problem? I think I see it manifested in behavior. And by that, I mean not wearing masks in, in an indoor environment. You don't necessarily have to do, but just a, a feeling of a lack of precaution now. And I think that, I don't remember when this study was done, but this feels like um, it's, it's moving, you know, this is more of a reflection as we move toward from, from a pandemic to an endemic infection with uh, SARS-CoV-2. So I, I do see it. I do see it, and I believe that um, it's it's almost understandable. It's like human nature. This is, I mean, that's that's why it's such a battle. You're battling essentially human nature that people look at themselves and look at those around them, and that's where they connect. And so when they see the other that is having the problem, that means that it's a zero sum gain. If they're having a problem, I'm having less of a problem. So yes, I do see it, and I do feel it is something that we need to address. Dr. Oliver T. Brooks, Chief Medical Officer over at Watts Healthcare. Doctor, thanks for coming on again and talking to us. We appreciate your time. Tragic event of a 14-year-old uh, getting killed on uh, one of these uh, quote-unquote amusement park rides. Uh, the, the story hasn't really fully came out yet. They're, they're investigating on it. Uh, the child uh, was exceptionally large, uh, larger than most adults, to tell you the truth. Uh, somehow, the people at the park allowed him to get on this, this uh, object. Uh, the first thing I would say about those type of machines, they have no, no logical purpose at all other than to frighten people. Somehow people uh, enjoy being frightened or have been conditioned in that way anyway, to be, to be enjoy being frightened. Uh, but anyway, uh, quite tragic. 
one thing, another reason why I'm bringing it up because I noticed in the report the father who was being interviewed kept emphasizing that this child was a straight A student. The only thing the news kept repeating over and over again is its prospects of being a football player. The family of the 14-year-old who fell to his death from the Orlando freefall ride at Icon Park is preparing to lay him to rest tomorrow. A tragedy happened about, about two weeks ago, and Nestor Motto has been following the story ever since and joins us live. I know, Nestor, the funeral for Tyree Sampson is going to take place in St. Louis. That's right. His family is getting ready to say their final goodbyes, and last night didn't make two weeks since that tragedy happened. Here in front of the Orlando Freefall, the memorial continues to grow, but as you said, the funeral is set for tomorrow. Tyree Sampson will be laid to rest on Saturday in his hometown of St. Louis. The 14-year-old died after he fell off the drop tower right here at Icon Park. Since then, the state and his family attorneys have both hired investigators to look into what went wrong. There have been questions over the ride's weight limit or if it should have had better restraints. Now, Florida rapper YK Osiris, who didn't know Tyree, he does tell TMZ that he spoke to the Sampson family and he plans to help pay for the funeral. When I saw it, I was like really in tears, to be honest with you. And I had, I felt like I had, it was my duty to do that. Like it was my duty to, you know, to help out. All right, so Tyree's family attorneys say that they are actually getting ready to file a lawsuit in the coming weeks. I'm live in Orlando. That's Ramato, Fox 35 News. Hi, Mr. Crump. Can we talk to you about some of the observations uh, inside at the ride? Uh, we just conducted our investigation into this tragic killing. For the most part, attorney Ben Crump told me little about the inspection of the freefall ride by his team of attorneys, ride designers, and safety experts. They spent hours going through operations and maintenance manuals, examining the main and remote operating equipment with its collection of warning lights, and the seat where Tyree Sampson was sitting the night of March 24th. The 14-year-old fell out of his harness as the ride was descending and died in front of horrified patrons. We think this was completely preventable. We're here doing a thorough investigation of this tragic killing. Um, other than George Flores, uh, tragic torture video, I think this is the worst tragedy captured on video that I've ever seen. Is there anything you can tell us from Sorry. your uh, cursory inspection here today? No comment, sir. This Department of Agriculture inspector spent the day Monday with experts from Quest Engineering, which has been hired by the state to investigate the fatal fall and determine if the owner, Orlando Eagle Drop Slingshot LLC, violated laws and rules designed to protect guests. Uh, because negligence is, is, is obviously not in question. But so they can Another family attorney, Michael Haggard, focused on the issue of weight. As West 2 Investigates earlier reported, Tyree's family says he weighed more than 300 pounds. But the manufacturer's recommended maximum weight is 287 pounds. State ride safety rules also say all height and weight restrictions must be posted. But while signs about height are on display, nothing near the ticket window addresses a maximum safe weight. The last chance to stop this thing, to just have a weight requirement and to enforce it. They have a height um, limit on there, height restriction, but I didn't see anywhere where they, where they measure it. So, and they have a weight restriction that's not disclosed to anyone. Context of white supremacy.
Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, April 9, 2022. So I have been told it was almost 70 degrees here on Thursday. In fact, it was so lovely the day we did the book club. I actually went to Richmond Beach, one of my favorite beaches in Seattle. It was so beautiful. Uh, that day you would not believe it uh, if you were to step outside today not that it's you know frosty but it is not it is not nor at any point was it 70 degrees today we can dream uh, this is our weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have thoughts observations questions counter racist suggestions the number to dial 720 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate you can follow us on twitter at until justice share i guess share with other victims of white supremacy racism if you think it's constructive information you can share the program let folks know that we are broadcasting live uh number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh, before we get to some of the folks who called in a uh, few things to share uh, let's see number one man oh man uh, I am no fan of social media I did give out the Twitter at until justice but I'm no fan if I was not doing attempted counter racist work I would not be on any social media at all and would be joyous about it. That said, I'm trying to think of the, oh my God. okay. So everything goes back to the slap. Now the band, right? With Chris rock and Will Smith at the Academy Awards just a few days back last week, no less. So I posted yesterday uh, a lengthy list of projects that I think are worthy of a ban. Someone, anyone who's classified as white, who's involved with the help scandal, Marvel's black Panther, precious Sanford and son. Like, you know, it was just how much time do we have for me to rattle off, you know, all the different projects that I think somebody should be banned for a lifetime flogged. Maybe who knows? So I post this. Don't think anything of it. I don't, you know, anticipate us having people come in to, to rally in defense of the help or what have you. <laughs> Gus T, idiot. Uh, so folks come in to rally in support of Sanford and Son. Red Fox relatives, I don't know. So I said, you what, Sanford and Son? What, what are you talking about? And so I list some of the problems, you know, lots of name calling, anti-blackness, uh, Red Fox spends most of his time uh, cooing about Lena Horn. If you want to bring up color uh, colorism, as it's called, uh, just anti-blackness out the wazoo. Uh, you have two black males who live and work. They are not just junk dealers. They live and work in a junkyard. Now, I just mentioned having the idea of black people trash. That's Fat Albert, that's Rock, uh, Sanford and Son, over and over and over. Uh, you see that repeated. Black people, 
trash. It's a lot of things, but I mean, hey, it's Twitter. You got 280 characters. So I said, what are you talking about, man? You don't even understand. This was created. Norman Lear, man. This is the, the lineage of all in the family. The Jeffersons. Sherman Helmsley. You don't even know, man. This is this is black American culture. Now, put that in quotes because that was said like verbatim. They said pretty much everything I just said is almost verbatim. You can read this on the timeline. This is black American culture. This is what black people do. Name called the dozens. You know. This is our cultural heritage. You got to put things in context. They even said that. Now, on the one hand, I said, man, reading is more important than watching television. I really don't think it's anything to brag about knowing information about Sanford and Son or the Jeffersons or all in the family other than to know that, hey, all of these entertainment in the system of white supremacy racism. It's pretty flagrant. I think if you study any of the content, that's what you're going to conclude. So on the one hand, I was kind of like, man, are you serious? And I was in that same vein, like you're suggesting you're saying all of this as though I'm not aware of this information, right? Like, I don't know any of the history about this show, where it came from or anything like that. Just for Gus T, that gets very old talking with folks where they are talking to you like you're just some dumb nigra. I try not to do that myself, but that is generally the system of racism, white supremacy, where we have been trained to think of and talk to black people like they are total morons and don't know anything, don't know anything. Like I said, hey, being informed about Sanford and Son is nothing to boast about. On the other hand, metaphor, to make this constructive, I was so happy because as opposed to taking my 280 characters and getting in as much profanity and who do you think you are talking to, Coon, and rah, 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 and all the rest of it, I said, we did an entire program. Matter of fact, give it to you better. During a cow's episode with the late Pamela Evans Harris, we played an entire installment of Sanford and Son. To be specific, we played the entire 17th episode of season two, Lamont Goes African. We broke it up into three equal seven minute chunks. I really didn't even talk. We just set up that this was going to happen. Pam talked and we just played the segments and I would just read a little bit from her book where she talked about white supremacy in entertainment and how it just conditions anti-blackness name calling and name calling and name calling. Fred, he bragged Red, the late Fred Red Fox who is mentioned in Minister Malcolm X's autobiography. He brags about not calling his son Lamont by his name. That's just straight code. He brags about calling him. I should do that as a trivia quiz. Just see like how much, how much now 
the test pam talked about this the test for really any media content so how does this make me feel about black people do i watch sanford and son you old heathen big dummy when i see all of this red fox is going to fight his sister-in-law every episode they have she's in a car accident aunt esther who is his deceased wife's sister does he think about her and get misty every time and reminisce there's not never mind i don't want to get into all that anyway do i watch all of this wow i feel crystal black proud hmm Anyway, so instead of name calling, I just made sure to re-upload and posted that. Let Pamela Evans Harris be my final retort uh, with any of that. That's that is black. And really, he is correct. And I think I said in the response, black American culture, so-called, is a pitiful response to white supremacy racism. All of it. Chris Rock, the cows, Rock, Fat Albert. Bill Cosby, all of it. Sanford and Son, put that in there too. Continuing. Uh, let's see. Going through these sound clips, see what I can get. I will only, I don't care about the uh, whole Will Smith thing other than to say him being banned. Whew. I don't think any of that would have happened if they had made King Richard and it had just been about black gangbangers in Southern California beating up Venus and Serena's dad, making it difficult for them to practice. They couldn't even get out on the tennis courts because he's no count hoodlum, toxic, raping black males. And then they just fast forward and then no count raping hoodlum, black males shot and killed Yutunde Price. If that had been King Richard, I don't think any of this would have happened. Will Smith could have got his Academy Award. I don't think Jada Pinkett Smith would have been insulted. I don't think there would have been any staged slapping. But that's just my, in fact, you can put a picture up now. I mean, hey, King Richard, Sanford and Son. 1973 to 2021. Thank God, some things have changed next uh, the segment at the very beginning about the boarding schools in Oregon they talked about how they were taking children from Washington State to Oregon I have to post the link to the report that was all audio but they had pictures of some of these stolen children man they can say they're Native American or whatever they want to I just said crystal black Whew. I mean Black, get back. You see these children like, whoa, you what any paperwork that you have that says that you are not a nigger, you had better like have it laminated, photocopies of it, get a flash drive, get 12 flash drives. Anything that says I'm not a nigger, you had better have that tattooed like on your forehead because these are some melanated children. They have a lot of black people who are so-called Native American. They just don't get called that. They just, you're, you know, sorry, you got too much melon. You just gonna have to be a nigger. Sorry. I know you get, I know, I know, I know, but nigger. Black get back, black get back. Uh, let's see. 
in that segment, they use the phrasing uncomfortable part of history. That is very common when talking about white supremacy, racism. I don't know what that means. Uncomfortable part of history. Are you talking about Sanford and Son reruns? Oh, you're talking about white people terrorizing non-white children. Got it. Got it. That uncomfortable part of history. Continuing. Let's see. They. Yoga for everybody. That was what they were talking about in Boston. I certainly uh, encourage and celebrate exercise, even if it's not yoga. I certainly have loved my yoga time. Uh, but if that's not your thing, some form of exercise that you can enjoy, not just got to go, you know, do my hike or swim or yoga or whatever it is. And you're just going to hate every side, something that you enjoy and are excited about and you feel better after doing it. Find something uh, that will help you with your fitness, even if it's like I said, hiking, that sort of thing. It doesn't have to be something with a lot of equipment and going to the gym, spending a lot of money. Uh, and that sort of thing, but it is super important. That's why the areas where the Negros live, they don't have Pilates studios, yoga studios, LA fitness, generally speaking, it'll be liquor stores, malt liquor, check cashing, that sort of thing. Where the white people live, they have the pet grooming, pet gelato, and then yoga studios, LA fitness, Tai Chi. Next, uh, let's see. The repar man, I don't know if we have any folks in California who are excited or what have you, and you signed up for the reparations and you know how all that will be unveiled. But they, we've been talking, uh, playing reports about what's happening in Evanston, Illinois, uh, right next to Chicago, Evanston, Illinois. And uh, I said from the very beginning, like, hey, how about not just black person? You're here in the Evanston area, Northwestern, bang, go for free, like. You talk about a life-changing experience. They even had some elderly black people. Hey, we got it online. We'll get transportation for you, what have you. Change your life. Learn all kinds of things, whatever you want. Go to school for life. Hopefully, you'll have you know, a good 30, 40 more years. Take some classes for 10, 15 years. You'll feel great. Be motivated. I said all along that would be way better than some, hey, let's break out the bingo wheel. That was one where I inserted the laugh track. The Bing is 2022 and they broke out the bingo wheel for the Negro reparations in Evanston. And then we don't even have enough cannabis tax money to even do but about 16 Negroes at a time for the. I mean, I have never heard of anything more tacky slipshod you have to forgive my English but I can't think of a more accurate term it's fit half ass I mean really the bingo wheel really really I would be embarrassed to even come out they said she's on zoom I couldn't even hear it I see they got the bingo wheel I love a little bingo they said the white people that were running the zoom they didn't know who the people that got picked were that's why I said I'm trying I'm not trying to be profane if you got a better word than half ass let's hear it all about expansive vocabulary I would have been embarrassed to even come out like what I gotta come out and admit that yes I was here I was waiting for the bingo wheel to see if I got picked for the reparations that they don't even have a budget for 
that's probably what you can look forward to in California. And then in the meantime, to have a whole lot of victims squabbling and arguing about who should qualify for all of this. And am I going to be able to get paperwork for my great, great grandfathers and great, great grandmothers? Because I mean, hey, (laughs) Red Fox, they were in the junkyard. Have fun looking for those birth certificates and what have you. Bingo wheel. Did you hear that? I apologize. We I encourage younger people to listen. Not trying to be crude. If there's a better term, share. Continuing. The same. I have to talk about that. I could have played that for workplace racism where they talked about it's not uh, constitutional having this uh, so-called quota system in California to diversify their hiring practices neutralizing workplace racism Thursday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific uh, easily could have included that on Thursday uh, in New York I just they were talking about the elimination of cash bail and how now this has become uh, contentious uh, Mayor Eric Adams black male he's been in office uh, for I guess what three months now or so not very long at all but crime huge issue all this crime crime oh my goodness what are we going to do gun violence in New York oh my god and they just had those two enforcement officers uh, who were both shot so big dramatic events to play up crime and what is this Negra mayor going to do about it former NYPD officer Eric Adams anyway and he just had that task force that was mentioned what I thought was really important maybe the most important piece in that segment They said that when they eliminated cash bail, the prison population decreased. I said, wow, remember all of that? What I deem to be really goofy talk. 2000, circa 2012, 2013. It was, hey, that's why we need to legalize cannabis and maybe legalize all the drugs. That will reduce the prison population. I said, that is crazy. Why do we need to legalize all these narcotics and have now, particularly what you've seen the two years in the pandemic with huge increase in alcohol consumption and alcohol related deaths and overdoses. What would that look like if we had all legal drugs? I could just be a moron. Sobriety would be rest would be best. Anywho, on top of all of that, they were saying, hey, if we legalize cannabis, that'll bring the population, prison population down, fewer Negroes locked up. I said all along, like, that's the best remedy for reducing prison population. I'm sure they didn't just learn over the past 10 years, like, hey, if we really want to reduce the numbers of Negroes, no cash bail. We know we make sure you Negroes don't have a whole lot of nickels. Jeffrey Epstein, you can go out raping willy nilly and hey, no big deal. You niggers, hey, might be stuck here for Khalif Browder. I would prefer that over legalization of narcotics any day, all day. Much greater effect. Without causing new problems, key metrics, solving problems without creating new problems. Uh, let's see. The they confirmed Katanji Brown Jackson they said now we've had three black individuals confirmed same thing I've said all along the only thing that I have learned if you are classified as black if you are going to be confirmed allowed to be on the Supreme Court of the United States you cannot be married 
to an individual classified as black. Solidified. Got it. Must be important for some reason. Hmm. Uh, cowbell. Cowbell for two out of the three. Uh, let's see. They mentioned the report uh, about the gang database. They have lots of these. They have them like California and what have you. And a lot of times they won't even define like exactly how are you defining a gang? What's the criterion? What's the criteria for belonging to a so-called gang? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago with the gang, the L.A. Sheriff's Department, right? They have legal definitions. What is it? Because sometimes it'll be real vague. Like, you know, you have on similar clothing. Like, what? <laughs> like, man, we we could have all been at the same high school and are walking home together. We all have on jeans and a T-shirt. And that's similar clothing, which is exactly how it's used. Sometimes if the people in the jeans and a T-shirt are niggers. Uh But I thought it was significant when they talked in that segment they said uh, several of the black males they said hey I went to private school and you know I was taught if you go to a private school get that education you'll be safe Uh, I thought of the late Lawrence Otis Graham he wrote a piece in the Washington Post circa 2014 about how he had his child enrolled in a lush private school and his child was walking on the grounds and some random white person rolled up and called him a nigra and their lush private school filled with white people uh, was not very supportive shock and so the result was that his son now was hesitant unwilling to talk about white supremacy racism feel like I've heard that before and he felt really you know some type of way about this because he felt like he had done all he could as a black male to kind of shield his child uh, shield put that in quotes and sending putting them in this environment and it did nothing of the kind and like I said kind of on the tragedy on top of all of this now he doesn't want to talk about white supremacy racism because that was discouraged by his administrators and classmates individuals classified as white anywho uh, I thought about that and then I also thought of Dr. Henry Louis Gates you can have all kinds of certifications and television programs and tragic arrangement cowbell and still find yourself shackled in your own residence. I know Pam said that that was a major incident for her, even a major incident in the Obama administration early on in the Obama administration. Uh, Let's see. They said in the segment, why can't adults in power understand if I can understand that this gang registry is harmful, part of racism, white supremacy for young black males, they do understand this is not because white people are ignorant this is white supremacy racism we're supposed to get our hands on shackle as many black men Khalif Browder that's what's supposed to happen very easy very serious either that's accurate or it's not in my conclusion the evidence is overwhelming that's what it is Mr. Fuller says that all the time this is what they like Khalif Browders continued I thought it was interesting they had the SPLC uh, come in to comment on the section about the 
new lynching legislation. The SPLC, we had Mark Potok from the SPLC on. They didn't even have, have a definition of justice when we spoke with them in 2010. Uh, and he name called Gus T. Anywho, uh, they were accused themselves of practicing racism, white supremacy against their own staff and not hiring black people. Same thing that we talked about in the same segment. Anywho, uh, they talked about the lynching uh, legislation. I thought it was super important. <laughs> Definitions. People so, so frequently we hear people talking. They don't have a def, uh, definition of racism. Don't have a definition of justice. They don't publicize the definition of a gang. We don't even have a definition of a lynching. Now, when I first read the report, I think like two weeks ago, I was reading what I thought was the definition of a lynching. But it was, I guess, the how they're defining this law uh, in terms of when it will apply. And I was saying then that, hey, this is vague enough. They're going to start charging black males specifically for lynching. That's what's going to happen. Uh, and you heard it there. We don't. And they just drift off into all this talk about symbolism. And this is an opportunity where we can teach about the history of it. We're hearing reports. We just had that mentioned on the program Sunday. Dr. Donald Matthews, he's raving about this report in The New York Times written by a black male victim of white supremacy does not mention the term racism once does not mention the term white supremacy once that sort of environment just for me further solidifies from the very beginning we intend to prosecute black people black males specifically with this lynching legislation we intend in Emmett Till's name we intend to lock up a whole lot of you nigger wouldn't surprise what I just said with like uh, Richard Wynn go after the, the black males who shot your tune day price say you know what this is a lynching and we're not going to stand for it that sort of thing especially if you said anything you called somebody some sort of name or what have you that they can say is an ethnic slur or something like that oh yeah in Emmett Till's honor. Uh, let's see. Uh, and just for real, since they had the lame SPLC on who were accused of practicing white supremacy racism when they were asked about modern lynchings, Ahmad Arbery, no disrespect. I would have appreciated Lennon Lacey. You actually did have a conviction with Ahmad Arbery. Lennon Lacey at the hands of persons unknown. Khalid Flimban, Hands of Persons Unknown, Frederick Germain Carter, Cody Ingham, long list I could have went on, but just few names that came to mind could have been listed. Many black people said, man, suspicious circumstances here. Even a cowbell there with Lennon Lacey, North Carolina again. Uh, let's see. In the sim- last thing I'll get in uh, just before I leave the lynching. They said this is symbolic. We had the Obamas in office for eight years. Remember them? Have they been totally forgotten? I saw Michelle Obama. She still looks lovely. Sasha and Malia all grown up now and everything. They were in the White House for eight years. It does not get more symbolic than that. What more symbolism do we need? How about solving some problems? How about at minimum, uh, Instead of the lynching legislation, can we get something that would be an improvement over the bingo wheel for the reparations in Evanston? How about that? No, that's asking too much. Sit down and be quiet. Last thing that I'll get in. 
well, one, I have a request, but it's all on the same thing. Retired firefighter in Florida, he told us about Tyree Sampson uh, some weeks back, earlier this month. Uh, the and, and even on that program, man, I said thrilling. I read the definition. I had to go to my blog and everything. Mr. Fuller has that in the word guide. Thrilling. I looked online once the program concluded this was the very day that retired firefighter brought up the death of this 14 year old Tyree Sampson the event or the ride where he died it was listed online as a thrill ride I posted it I was stunned a thrill ride and I had just read that definition that's how they will chase us oh that is thrilling and then apparently they got a video of this this young uh, black male's death like are you serious talk about lynching anywho uh, I can only say uh, with that I hope you know they investigate I hope everybody who can possibly uh, be sued uh, is sued uh, get you know as much as possible not that that will bring back uh, this young uh, black male uh, but they said that it didn't seem that they had any enforcement of the rules and regulations I guess if anything like man it is it is so dangerous being an attempted parent I'm not a parent like man this I guess this young black male he was from Missouri I guess he was visiting or whatever he was doing he didn't even live uh, in the Florida area where this happened man um, it is so hard just being trying to do the best that you can to be mindful about what your children are doing but we are in a total global system that does not care about black life uh, these type of rides and what happened we don't care <laughs> like you niggers get on 10 20 the only time we care like if this is going to be bad publicity is this going to shut the park is this going to shut our thrill ride down for a month so we can't make a few nickels is this going to cost us a lawsuit that's really you know the rest of it we do not really care about you niggers like whatever just get on pay us our money get on and shut up you know like really and I mean it's it's horrible I've been a child where you want to go to the amusement park or the water park or whatever it is but I mean woof. in a system of racism white supremacy you really have to be super you know I almost want to say kind of prudish uh, about things because there's so much to just kind of be mindful of and, and so many things are just not intended to be safe it's intended to thrill maybe even kill somebody total disgrace my question uh ben crump was investigating this i think he's also involved in the case uh of uh, aaron henderson the black male who also in florida uh was killed in a portable toilet we talked about that on neutralizing workplace racism um it seems i've been you know hearing his name associate trayvon martin case and many others over the years seems like a lot of non-white people are not pleased with him if he did something incorrect uh, folks could explain it to me why there is such animosity directed at uh, Benjamin Crump uh, as though he, you know, engaged in some of these acts himself, you know, killing Trayvon Martin or whatever else it is. But if someone could explain that to me, I would be super grateful. The number 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts that would be great 
Uh, also, if you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could uh, be mindful of the background noise, perhaps use your mute button. That would be great uh, just to make sure that we do not have to compete with a lot of unnecessary disruptions. Uh, if you could not use metaphors, analogies, that would be great. Uh, race soldiers will use them frequently to practice deception. Uh, I know sometimes we're still learning, so we don't have our words collected. Uh, if we could make every effort to be as exact, precise as possible, that would be super appreciated. I will uh, give reminders about the metaphors. Uh, let's see. Uh, first few folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up. Lawn should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Bay Area mom. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Sorry, I had to. I had earphones on. I had to find my phone. It's like, oh my god, where is it? Okay. Uh, Benjamin Crump. I think black people are mad at him because, or or have a issue with him because he wasn't Johnny Cochran. He wasn't able to, uh, I think we put a lot into him as far as his cases. And he was only able to do what he could do as far as resolving the issues. And it wasn't good enough uh, for us, I think. That's what that's what I hear. Every time I hear his name, I hear, uh, and I think it's because he didn't do enough. He didn't, maybe he didn't die for us or, or something. He didn't do enough. So that's, that's uh, what I believe our issue is with um, Trump. And I think and he's the one that had the toupee. Yeah, he had the t Trayvon Martin. Oh, yeah. So because uh, Johannes Meserly only got two years in boot camp with time served with Filet Mignon, and then Walnut Creek said uh, he needed to be out of jail and he needed money for when he got out of jail. Uh, I think we just took it out on him instead of uh, the people that created the system to make it complicated for him to be who he was trying to be, a lawyer representing justice. Oh, the bingo will. So, yeah, I, I was uh, – what was that? And, um um, Everson. Yeah, I was I was tripping off of that too, how they're selecting who would be uh possible candidates, perhaps maybe for repair or reparations. I thought that was interesting. Um and then the way they had the volume to where you couldn't even hear your numbers, you had to bring a friend in and uh make sure they were listening out for your name or number. It, it was interesting. And then so you're only getting money. You only get a couple of dollars. That's nothing. I would. That is not repair. A couple of dollars. Okay, you give me a couple of dollars, maybe if I'm lucky. Let's say we'll max it to maybe forty thousand, maybe for all the damage that you've done to my DNA. And then I invested into my house, and then something happened, and I lose my house, and then I just lost all my repair. But it might make my value of my house go up because with all this, I don't even have adequate air conditioning in certain places. 
and I need that to make my property more valuable. I thought that was oh dear. Okay, um and the uh the schools, um the um how they sent the little uh Indian uh children um to those boarding schools in Oregon and then they don't have a lot of mention of it, but then like you stated the Indians that we see these days look uh, like they speak Spanish. But the Indians, the original Indians that I may see, they look like us. Um, oh, so the, the, uh, the guy, the guy that uh, was uh, detained um, for two years because they said he was in a, a part of a gang that wasn't even a gang member. In California, particularly Oakland, California, several years back, they said three or more Negroes equal a gang. Three or more Negroes is considered a gang. It's not a few anymore. Three is not a few. It means a whole gang. So that's what they did. They did that before I had my son. That's been almost 20 years or so. They put it together like that, and they sneak these little laws in, and you don't even you don't even know what's going on. But I totally remember that because I was like, "Oh, you got to raise this boy like he could be considered a gang member." So it's just a lot of uh, tricky uh, laws they passed, and I had to raise my child around. Um, what else? What else? What else? What else? What else? Uh, Anti lynching bill. Uh, I, I, I'm not excited about the anti-lynching bill. Someone had stated that it should be named after the person maybe 100 years ago or so that wanted to have uh, initiated the uh, anti-lynching bill. I forgot his name, but he was black, and they just I was like, hey, let's it up. But now you have this bill, and you name it. You spent thousands of black males, and you name it after Emmett Till. I'm not um, angry. I just think, I don't know. And then when you do, uh, you pass this bill, um, this is what Obama's giving us, right? So since black people have been complaining that he's not helping, boop, there you go. And Tyler, talk about it, Kamala. Talk about that bill. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Put a bill for you guys. But they're not necessarily lynching us. Uh, the way they were, right? And then the way they're going to word what defines lynching could, when I curse you out and read you your rights with my tongue, would that be a verbal lynching? Would, would I get a 30 years on top of whatever the, the charge is? Because it's going to affect black people. It's not going to, um, white people will not get charged. They won't even, <laughs> they won't even come close to being charged with this anti lynching bill. They won't even come up. Uh, racketeering. What's going to come up is when black people do something, anything, you cuss somebody out at work, uh, uh, I felt lynched when he, when he said that to me. You're going to jail. So, uh, yep, that's it. That's it. That's it. I'll mute my line and thank you for taking my call. Oh, and I one more thing. The budget, so there's not even enough, uh, there's not even enough tax money from the weed 
that they packed in to give you repair. So those are just hopes. And maybe you might get a dozen, a little over a dozen, maybe, depending on how well we sell this week. Okay, I'll be real long. Extra super pitiful, like all the way through. Bingo wheel and all. Much obliged, Bay Area mom. I don't know if it's James Weldon Johnson or Ida B. Wells Barnett, who they were maybe pushing to name the anti-lynching uh, legislation. Not that that would make it any better, but um, yeah, I'll have to check and see. But um, I, I'm pretty, just from everything that they said, they don't even have a definition. I'm pretty sure this is going to be used against black people. Uh, the gang being three or more black people that's what I mean like I know California is one of those areas where ooh wee like it was I, when I lived in California I remember them having laws like that you know if you're a black person you three of you all you all have on red t-shirts don't let it be the Raiders at uh, one time they played in Oakland or played in California period um, don't let it be, you know, the Raiders had a game or the Golden State Warriors. They still play in the Bay Area. Uh, and you all decide to all have on your gear that day. Eee. Or you all, like I said, you all just we all went to the same high school. So you all got on similar school colors as we we're walking home from school. And eee. now we're the Crips and the Bloods, Suge Knight's homies and all the rest of it. Incidentally, even I know with the uh, they were saying all the drug and racketeering like they have whole documentaries. I had a victim. We talked about this. Then I saw it in a documentary. Then when I said happened to me, just I experienced this. So I knew how to respond correctly. But if someone approaches you in public and you tell them or they say, "Uh, hey, do you know why I could score some drugs? And you point like, oh, I think maybe that house over there. You, you don't have to know the people at the house. You don't have to have any drugs. You don't have to have to have been to that house. Just if, you know, that's like the known spot for drugs. And someone comes up and says this. And you're like, oh, I think that house right there, maybe. Boop. They can get you for conspiracy to sell all that. Right. They have whole documentaries where black, the same thing, like what you heard in that audio clip. Black person in school doing no criminal record nothing and just oh I think you can right there I think and whammo 15 years it's all kinds of craziness totally ruined their life I saw this so I talked about this saw the documentary to confirm this then literally I'm out in Seattle sir mix a lot posse on Broadway I'm literally on Broadway in Seattle and a white woman is talking to me this is like a year before the cows and she says uh what do you mean? What do you mean racism? What, what do you mean? You know, your experience being as a, as a black person. I said, people think of me as some sort of drug dealer and a hooligan all the time. Now, literally 60 seconds from the time that I say this, a white person walks up to me, both of us, because we we're talking, walks up and says, uh, hey, man, do you know where I could score some drugs? I don't even answer him. I just looked at her. She said, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened. I said, you're not understanding. I can't believe I did. The cows didn't exist yet. Still learning. I was like, man, you're not understanding. That's I'm just the neighborhood Negro drug peddler. That's me. Now, literally, 
within 60 seconds, it happened again. Again, this was all the time. That's even to this day. I ignore everybody when I'm out in public because I do not expect a stranger to come up and have anything constructive. Just, oh, do you know where I can get some smoke or, you know, whatever else like get and, and it's not just you know get away from me i'm not drug peddling it's that can be a charge if you point signal direct anything <sighs> smuggling narcotic gang member lots of that's why i says lots of dangers the thrill rides and just being outside uh let's see the uh oh and the, with the reparations i think it was you can it's not even like they just give you a check in Evanston it's like you can use this money for like house repairs or loan payment or whatever but it's not even like they just give you $25,000 and you know have at it see you know maybe you can start a business or get a really nice shoe collection <laughs> whatever the case like it's really limited once we sell <laughs> once they peddle enough narcotics even that like that's the best way you could come up with to incentivize the reparations program hmm and so then if you don't get enough funding it's because we didn't buy enough drugs tacky all the way through man like how about let's at first let's see if we can sell enough weed to get an upgrade over the bingo wheel how about that Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, star six one. Proceed. Uh, Rob in Southern California. Yes, sir. Uh, greeting, best uh, callers on the line. Um, wanted to comment about the uh, young black male that died <clears throat> on the thrill ride. Um, a very tragic situation. Um, it's interesting because I was just asking uh, coworkers at work if they, you know, did the roller coasters, uh, roller coasters or whatever. Um, and a lot of them answered yes. <clears throat> um, I've been to Great America one time and uh, got on roller coasters and literally uh, fear for my life. Uh, when I was <laughs> on the roller coaster, um, and I've never uh, had that experience again. Um, and so I tuned in kind of late. Uh, I didn't get a lot of the uh, audio, but I just wanted to uh, kind of update um, my situation, what I've been going through. Um, I haven't called in for a while. Uh, I got a different phone, uh, and the interesting thing is that my previous phone uh, is a iPhone, um, which I paid for. Um, when I tried to call into the college program, uh, I was told I would be charged uh, per minute, and with the new phone that I have, uh, which is a uh, free phone that I get through the state. Uh, it's no charge when I call into the program. I thought that that was uh, pretty interesting. Um, and so 
I moved from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, just about four years ago. Um, and when I moved to the city of San Diego, um, I had never been to the state before. Um, literally came here with a backpack, um, experienced homelessness uh, while I've been in the state. And um, I'm still here. Uh, I don't have a glamorous life. I don't make a whole lot of money. Um, but I am still here. And, you know, a lot of times <clears throat> as we are, was as I'm moving, uh, as I'm living my day-to-day life, uh, it's not a lot of time to stop and reflect. Um, so, you know, I guess, I guess that's kind of what I'm doing now, but I wanted to, uh, also, uh, say to you, Gus, thank you. Uh, I know you say that, uh, you know, whether you like the cows, so what, if you like the cows, so what, if you don't like it, whatever. Um, but through everything that, uh, I've been going through personally, um, one thing that has been consistent throughout everything uh, is the cows program, um, whether it's the archives and, and or whether it's the live program. Um, I can pretty much always, uh, I, think so. uh, I, I can always call in and or know that it's going to be, the program is going to be there at a, a certain time. And uh, with the um, difficult things that I've been experiencing, having that consistency has uh, has been good for me. And uh, thank you. And uh, so just to update my situation, I said that, you know, I experienced homelessness since I've been here. And so I recently had a situation where I was faced with the uh I was faced with homelessness again, um, fell behind rent a couple of months and uh received like a three day notice and uh it was pretty stressful. Um I didn't know uh exactly what was gonna happen. And um you know like Nilly Fuller has a clip where he says like you know, black people act like, act like they have some secret army, but really, you're all alone. And I really experienced that uh, the second time um, where I was facing homelessness. Um, the small circle of people that I can call, you know, I was thinking like, well, man, if, you know, if I share this situation, there's no way that, you know, uh, people will allow me um, to live on the street again. And so when I reached out, uh, there wasn't any uh, receptive answers. Like nobody said, hey, man, you know, you're going through that again. You can, you know, you can come over here. Uh, nah, I didn't experience any of that. It was just like silent. And one, uh, one cousin uh did 
you know, tell me that I could uh, come live with her, which is uh, in Mississippi. Um, but she did tell me, like, you know, this town right here, uh, it's like, you know, retirement. You know, people, it's not, you know, it's not a lot going on in the city. Not a lot of jobs. Public transportation isn't that good. Um, so I uh, put an application in for uh, to receive uh, rent assistance through a uh, COVID-19 rent relief program. And so I received the second three-day notice. And then, like, the day after that, the rent relief for COVID uh, came through for me. And so now um, I'm in a position where they covered my rears and then also uh, three months in advance. Um, so that will uh, give me the opportunity to uh, save a couple of coins. And um, when I save a couple of coins, but that will give me the opportunity to uh, save some uh, money from my paychecks and um, try to establish um, a better financial situation. And I think I'll leave it there. And thank you for listening and taking my call. better than uh wisconsin because i think you could have got covid rental assistance even in wisconsin so still better than wisconsin um out so that's a very interesting question because i i thought about that question today and i you know i said to myself i'm like you know, what position would I be in if I was in Wisconsin? And so I would say, yes, it is better than Wisconsin. So I live in a, I live in downtown San Diego. Okay. And so I'm surrounded by a lot of restaurants, a lot of bars. Okay. And it's, in San Diego right now, you have uh, that. You have a lot of homeless people, and a lot of the homeless people um, they, they live downtown. Okay, so but also downtown, you have um, very how would I say? You have uh, people with a lot of finances as well. You know, so you, it's like this, um, it's like a mix of um, poor people and wealth. And if I was in the city, if I was in the city of Milwaukee, um, I wouldn't be in the same surrounding. So like with, with my financial position in Milwaukee, I would be surrounded by more gun violence, um, a lot more drugs, um, and I was just having this thought as I was listening to the program, like I'm in a very interesting position right now because for my 
for almost the entirety of my life, I've been surrounded by people that's classified as black. And now, oftentimes, I'm the only person classified as black in the in the setting. So, so that dynamic is uh, I'm still learning. And I'll, I'll leave it there. Still learning myself. Feel you. I would take San. I have been to Wisconsin. I have been to San Diego specifically. I would take San Diego over Wisconsin all day, every day, twice on Sunday. Like, no contest. Uh, I'm super glad to hear because that can be really stressful. And really, that's what racists have planned for non-white people all over the known universe have you in some sort of houseless look at the situation in Ukraine right now specifically even look at the dark people shirt on your back what's going to happen what's going to happen that's what they intend for non-white people all over the known universe and even the stress of that thankfully he was able to get resources and not just you know a little halfway or whatever but resources where he could save a little bit get that uh, metaphor they use nest eggs you can have a little bit of cushion and all that and can get some of that stress off of your head for a few months spectacular but I mean that that right there by racist design and then especially the last two years because everything has been so much upheaval and Robin San Diego, he'd been talking about his job and how the hours had been in flux and schedule had been in flux and all the rest of it, him being the only black male there, black male privilege. Uh, so all of that is intended and many, many people all over the world, even you got some white people, white sacrifice uh, who are struggling with that, but certainly large numbers of non-white people. But glad you got the uh, assistance uh, that you needed and hope you can even get some time for just self-care. I know uh, the beach, Coronado Beach, Uh, I would hit the beach, (sighs) just listen to the water, soak in some sunshine, take some self-care time for all of that. Uh, And then adjusting to being the only individual classified as black in the environment as well that's some recuperation time also Uh, let's see the number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate do not wait till the last minute if you think you have thoughts questions observations you would like to share Uh, just also wanted to make sure I got and especially if we have any folks if you can break it down to Gus T why is Benjamin Crump so disliked or at least that's the sense I get I know Bay Area mom said it seems he is not Johnny Cochran he didn't you know he hasn't won all of his uh, cases and what have Johnny Cochran didn't win all of his cases either think he lost Leonard uh, Deadwilder think he lost that case black male who was shot and killed by the police trying to get his pregnant wife who was in labor to the hospital and he gets shot and killed I don't think he won that case uh, the late great Johnny Cochran tough standards here even F. Lee Bailey former Cal's guest he didn't win all of his cases either like man that's uh, 
Woo. That's a tough metric if that's what it is. Like, got to be perfect. In a system of white supremacy, like, yikes, yikes. Uh, let's see. Can I, oh. can I be heard again if no one's going to speak? Uh, let's proceed. I was going to get in my other point, but let's hear it. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Dwayne Haskins, NFL football player, um, was uh, tragically uh, killed by uh, some type of truck on a Florida highway today. And so I heard the clip about uh, the pedestrians being killed in L.A., so I wanted to kind of connect those two. Um, now, the interesting thing about uh, this news story, when this morning before I left for work, when I was looking at it, it was stating that he was just out of his vehicle, you know, like maybe checking on something or something like that. And now later this evening when I got off of work and I'm looking at it, it stated that they don't know why Dwayne Haskins was walking on the highway. And I haven't heard anything about the driver, uh, nothing about the driver being charged or, you know, did the driver stop and check on the, you know, check on the uh, blackmail or anything like that. Uh, so I just wanted to uh, add that. Um, yeah, you know, uh, dangerous uh, being a uh, pedestrian or uh, if you're a driver, um, the last thing that I'll add is um, I take the uh, public transit uh, to and from work, and it's this particular stop sign uh, where I walk past every day that is leading out of the plaza that I work in, and this stop sign, people just regularly don't stop at the stop sign. So you have traffic. It's the one way. So you have only traffic coming from the left. So people are just running a stop sign and only looking to their left when they're coming out. And I'll leave it there. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, caller Rob in Southern California. Uh, I did see uh, the death of uh, Dwayne Haskins uh, earlier today and we did have that segment on them uh, kind of doing some vigilante crosswalk painting uh, down in Rob's Southern California, although that was L.A., not San Diego. It's about 45 minutes apart. Um, but we had on the program uh, last summer the book uh, Right of Way, uh, non-Clemson gra non grad's suggestion. Uh, and she said the person most likely to be a pedestrian fatality in the US Dwayne Haskins black male privilege again and we talked about that in detail uh, and in fact I mean Florida is like super dang because that's the same place Polk County where Aaron Henderson uh, was hit ran over by a uh, bulldozer in a portable toilet but yeah with Dwayne Haskins he was hit by a dump truck now, you know, that's one have to see all the the uh, information in terms of where he was walking and what all the circumstances were. That's another one. Breathalyzer for the driver and, you know, all the rest of it. But woof. 
be and even even there uh, i hope you know uh condolences to his family and everything they'll investigate and, and figure out what happened but even with that the worthlessness of black life they spoke with a white man former representative for the dallas uh cowboys i just you have to give me a second to get his name but he did an interview mr haskins just died they were talking to this white man uh via uh sports radio and he says, oh, yeah, he the way he lived, he was just asking to die, you know, reckless as he was. Maybe if he'd stayed in school a little bit longer, he wouldn't have got himself killed like this. I'm paraphrasing, but that's like exactly what he said. Mr. Haskins just died like hours ago. And then people heard this and rightly outraged, like what in the world? What are you talking about? And, you know, uh, he walked Then He what did they say? He walks it back oh i'm so sorry i'm so sorry let me make sure i get his name out gil brant that's it gil brant b-r-a-n-d-t i might even if i have the transcript i might even uh let's see oh yeah i can give it to you they said they advised him not to leave school Uh, i despise it when anyone is killed or dies but he was a guy who was living to be dead, so to speak, Brandt said, before harping on Haskins' decision to leave Ohio State early to enter the 2019 NFL draft. They advised him not to leave school early under any circumstances. Simply put, you lack the necessary work habits as well as this and that. So how did he go about it? He left school early. Brandt continued, adding that Haskins, who was drafted number one overall, was always something the and i'm not changing the name the washington redskins finished the year with a total score of 15 points according to the florida highway patrol brent went on to speculate wildly about how the early saturday morning accident on i-90 i-595 in south florida occurred perhaps if he just stayed in school for a year he wouldn't do stupid things like jogging on a highway you know on a road like that that leaves it open because I tell you, if a guy has two drinks and it's just a little bit to the right side of the road and gets hit and killed, that's easy to happen. They haven't even done an investigation or anything. What happened to this? Our prayers go out to the family. It would be inappropriate for me to comment at this time. It's been so soon. I know the Steelers organization because he, uh, Mr. Haskins was employed by them. I know the Steelers organization and they'll do class act all the way and they'll look out for his family and everything, but just our hearts and prayers go out to the family tragedy all the way around. That's it. I don't even need PR. That's all you need to say. What? I'm going to take this moment. He just got killed by dump truck. You know, these niggers leaving school early. Black male privilege? That's what they said, right? They said Mr. Haskins, because he's one of the nigger athletes, black males that has privilege, black male privilege? You die tragically at a young age and they sit around and mock you hours after your death? Condolences to the family of Mr. Haskins. Being a pedestrian, very hazardous, especially if you are a black male right of way we already talked about this in detail and the folks even mentioned Daryl Deadman went out and deliberately ran over their victim in Minnesota I have to get his name as well other folks who uh, dialed in uh, if we missed you totally if you have commentary to share proceed
James Craig Anderson, his uh, Daryl Dedman's victim uh, killed in Mississippi. I believe that was 2011. James Craig Anderson ran that nigra over. I played that sound clip and have played it for years. You could really call that a lynching too. They said it was a group of uh, white teens went out deliberately looking for a black person to kill. They yelled white power. They got this on video. That's one that easily why not prosecute that one as a lynching? That's two th- and that that's one that could have been mentioned as well. Like, do we have lynchings right now? 21st century? Absolutely. System of racism, white supremacy. What is the value of black life? James Craig Anderson or any other black person victim of racism? Uh, did everybody get their comments in? Anybody, any other folks have commentary? May I be heard? Caller in Florida? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, let's see. The uh, the segment where they were, I think that was up in the New York area, where they were talking about the mayor or there might have been some white people um, angry and upset about, I guess, some of the COVID uh, restrictions coming back, I'm thinking, because of the cases on the rise or they're increasing. Uh, And I'm trying to remember what was said during that segment. I guess something about the mask, the masking, uh, sound like that might have been a white person talking about the children going back to school, having to wear a mask or the younger children or something like that. And I also thought about that segment where the, that might have been a black person was going in depth on a study about the comparisons on black people um, adhering to the uh this I guess the C D C guidelines or whatnot about wearing the mask and the virus uh decreasing. And I think if I heard it all correctly, I don't know if it was said that white people weren't doing the same thing in the same amount. Um and then it looked like the person that was conducting the interview, I guess, uh wanted to change to another, I guess, subject or something like that and and neglected what that person was speaking about on that study. Um, because uh, it just seems like whenever a new, I guess, variant or the term they use, sub-variant, seems to come back, uh, is connected to the white defiance as the, the term that you use. And the, the the most recent example I'm thinking of is that the Canadian border, I think, where they had the giant or uh, long list of or long line of semi-trucks um, holding up and impeding the, the line of vehicles coming into the country. And that was also a part of them doing a protest, and that was mainly white people. I think they did it for, like, what, two weeks or something like that? 
you know, and it's just that same um, uh, that white aggression, white defiance being on display just when it comes to just wearing a mask or something. And I guess they, it was also talking about the shots and everything, but my thing is just wearing a mask, like it, it seems to be difficult for, <laughs> for many white people in a significant enough group to do that for a long enough time, I guess to have some kind of an effect. Um, just like how that one white parent was saying that she had firearms and then uh, made a statement saying that that's not what she meant, but that's exactly what she said. Uh, and one last thing I wanted to share is I'm trying to remember, it's a case down uh, in the, the Dade County area um, where the retired firefighter is, a uh, black male was stabbed to death by a white woman, a cowbell. Um, they were talking about it on some uh, social media sites, and I hadn't really heard much of an update on the story, but, you know, they posted pictures together, and the response to that was, this this female was uh, Baker acted, this white woman. And they, now, of course, you know, I can, I'm not surprised they didn't broadcast it in the news media, but they said that they Baker acted her, like MH, mental health. I'm like, wow, <laughs> if that were, if that were in reverse, that would have been broadcasted all over the place, like everywhere. Um, I can't remember the name, but, uh that was a case that happened in the last maybe like two weeks or something like that. Um, other than that, that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Mm-hmm. Disgraceful. Uh, cowbell indeed. I'm looking, I think this is the reports. So I'm looking at the Miami Herald. Uh Miami Instagram model fatally stabs boyfriend. Cops trying to figure out if it was self-defense. Stand your ground land. Uh, Christian Toby Obuma. Oh, man. Obumsali. That's it. Obumsali. My apologies. Obumsali. O-B-U-M-S-E-L-I. Was a handsome Texan who came to Miami to work in cryptocurrency. His girlfriend was Courtney Clinny of Michigan, a social media influencer who has millions of followers on Instagram and OnlyFans. On Sunday, Clinny fatally stabbed Obumsali, 27, inside their luxury high-rise Edgewater apartment in what Miami police say was a domestic dispute. But five days after the killing, police and prosecutors have not decided whether to charge Clinny, 25, while they try to sort out whether she was acting in self-defense. The celebrity gossip website TMZ on Friday posted a video of a blood-stained, handcuffed Clinny talking to Miami police officers, shaky images apparently taken from an adjacent building. 
Abum Saleh's supporters have taken to social media to call for an arrest in the case as his relatives held a press conference Friday afternoon outside the state attorney's office. My brother was so caring. He was my inspiration and an inspiration to others. Obum Saleh's brother, Jeffrey Obum Saleh, told reporters, bowing his head and taking a breath, there are many unanswered questions. We just want justice for my brother. Relatives met Friday afternoon with Miami-Dade prosecutors who told them a decision on filing charges would depend on the evidence gathered by Miami police homicide detectives. Devastation doesn't quite describe what the family is experiencing, said cousin Karen Egbuna. He was raised in a very strong family with strong morals and strong values. He does not come from that. The idea that this was warranted is unfeasible says the two had been dating for less than two years so-called um whew. wow said uh died of a single stab wound to the front of his chest hmm man oh man lots of dangers uh out and about um yeah it's, uh they'll have more information about this case uh, as we proceed, like, man, this is, he's so young, like 27 years old, like total shame. Um, tragic arrangements are dangerous for a variety of reasons. Uh, they've had a number of these cases where, and especially with people that hooked up online, I don't know how they met, said they've been met for two years. So I don't know if they met online or not, but uh, a number of these cases where the people hooked up, they met online or whatever it was so-called uh tragic arrangements and then the black person male and females where they ended up dying under suspicious circumstances they've had a number of those cases lots of dangers lots of things to talk to your offspring about especially racism white supremacy and the folks that you are hanging out dr cambon talks about that who you're hanging out with and all the rest of it like oof condolences uh to his family though that is horrendous the uh the female who was harassing mayor uh adams uh her name was jenny excuse me daniela jampel uh she was the one that was grousing about the the masks uh and they were doing all that they, the, they had video to that these look like individuals who'd be classified as white uh, in all of the, you know, you you said you were going to unmask the toddlers and they are the folks who are at less of a risk. And why do you keep going back and forth all this? They said she reportedly lost her job uh, because of the way that she spoke to Mayor Adams. White people don't get fired. They get transferred. So I'm sure she will be fine and, you know, will just become a martyr for white people who are upset about the so-called uh, mask and COVID-19 restrictions and all the rest of it. Like, oh, man, they fired her. They had no count. Mayor Adams. I don't even know if Mayor Adams had anything to do with it. I think her company could have just, you know, been dis disgruntled with her behavior, what have you. But Daniela Jampel, J-A-M-P-E-L uh, is her name. And I think she'd be classified as white. Uh, let's see. Anywho, uh, we'll assume we nabbed all folks had anything else I wanted to reflection super important I would encourage everybody to invest some time in thinking about things that have happened you have your own questions about things racist white supremacists do not want non-white people to be able to get time to sit 
and calmly think, process events, things that happen. Uh, they are super opposed to that. That was why Dr. Welsing, she always would talk about when they had all that noise next to her residence from the school and everything because she wanted to be able to think, read, allow her brain computer to work to the best of its capabilities. Super important. So if you do hiking, right, or now that it's getting warmer, you can go out to the beach and all that. You can sit quietly, turn off your cell phone, electronics and things and just might help us come up with new concepts to solve the problem much obliged for everyone tuning in hope it was worthy of your saturday or if you listen to the archives or what have you invest if you think the program is constructive visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com you'll see the review of king richard that right there is why will smith banned they do not racist man racist woman they do not want to promote black self-respect they want Sanford and son heathen big dummy that's what they want racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com King Richard review right there PayPal button is in the top right corner you'll also see the links for PayPal cash app Venmo huge thanks to all the folks who have invested kept us on the air for 13 plus years hope it has been worthy of your time and energy uh, sobriety would be best uh, we started off with that clip about making it easy to get more prescription medications and all the rest of it try to minimize avoid all that if we can as well in addition to being sober uh, if you're going out no time for confrontations with strangers there are so many dangers we just heard stabbing white woman lots of dangers in the system of white supremacy racism man if you're out in public and you see some stranger being loud and rowdy exit this is no time for confrontations this person may have an entire armed entourage unless you're ready to kill and or die right now exit call enforcement officers as you are vacating if you're in a vehicle you're buckled you're not on a cell phone paying attention to what's happening around you uh, we need to be alert as we can, uh, possibly can uh, given everything that's happening and we're trying to do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that's it creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person no name calling no gossiping no throw away children we are not going to be reckless with sexual intercourse there's already enough killing Tyree Sampson and black males. We already got tons of that going on. No throwaway children. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, bro. Goodbye. A victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Ah.